1: then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com helping you filter through the noise Real
2: Talk Black Talk
3: The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies We've all seen them and many people on social media complaining about it Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com.
4: Ladies and gentlemen, today's feature presentation: Driving Miss Daisy. No, oh no, man, no. just, oh, just man. what I'm, I'm talking about. Turn turning
5: mm. to the yeah. dim. I'm out of here, man. Sweet. Hey yo, check it out, man. I got black C's at the crib, man. Y'all wanna go check that out? Yeah. This idea could we could have rolled with from the beginning, y'all. Fuck Hollywood.
6: Taraji P. Henson made under two percent of Brad Pitt's in the Benjamin Button movie of her salary in that. So she's publicizing her new memoir called Around the Way Girl, and she talks about her film The Curious. Case of Benjamin Button, in which she was the third build star alongside Brad Pitt and Kate Blanchett, each of whom received millions of dollars for their role in the movie, where she was promised or somewhere in the mid-six figures for her role as Queenie, who is the adoptive mother of Benjamin Button. Um, but indeed, the producers lowballed her uh, and actually offered her something in the lowest of the six figures range. Of this, she says, quote, there was one other thing I'd half to agree to pay my own location fees while filming in New Orleans, meaning three months of hotel expenses, would be coming directly out of my pocket. Insult meet injury. Now, she had been working in Hollywood for over a decade at this time, so this was really insult to injury. She says, quote, There are way more talented black actresses than there are intelligent, meaningful roles for them, and we're consistently charged with diving for the crumbs of the scraps lest we starve. Uh, She goes on to say, and then, then we'll get into a little bit more of the discussion, here. This is exactly how a studio can get away with paying the person whose name is third on the call sheet of a big budget film less than two percent what it's paying the person whose name is listed first. I knew the stakes no matter how talented no matter how many accolades my prior work had received if I pushed for more money I'd be replaced and no one would so much as blink. She now gets paid six figures per episode on the hit show Empire and of this she credits Tyler Perry um, because he was the one that actually raised her quote in the movie i can do bad all by myself and just so that everyone is aware she was actually nominated for best supporting actress for her role in benjamin button so this is a really sort of convoluted story a lot going on here how did you react when you heard this Brad? what i
7: can say is mm-hmm. how i reacted i can do bad all by myself is actually a pretty good movie mm-hmm. if you heard tyler perry and were like "Oh, uh, stupid medea whatever it's actually, I she was amazing and she was really good and I could do bad all by myself and she's a really good actress. But when I hear that like you made 2% of what Brad Pitt made, I go, yeah, of course you did. That's Brad Pitt. Kate Blanchett had been a, you know, Elizabeth like yeah. I get it the the argument the logic I have trouble with is I've been working in Hollywood for over a decade and I'm still not making a lot of money like yeah that's Hollywood like I've been working in Hollywood for over a decade and I'm not making that kind of money well you're no
6: Taraji P. Henson I
7: I agree I absolutely (laughs) agree but saying that I've been working in Hollywood for ten years is
8: not a good argument.
6: What about you, Michael? I, well, you know,
8: even not knowing very much about her, the plight is real. So you know that there are fewer parts for black actresses. You know that she got lowballed. But by... the thing that I find most outrageous, honestly, is that they made her pay to yeah. stay where she was. I mean, they're shooting a movie in New Orleans and they hired her to be an actress. How did that happen? Right? I mean, yeah. She... Where's the, the where's the, the union? People are going to this movie or not, but people are going to this movie to see Brad Pitt. He brings in the millions, and he gets paid more because of that. Taraji P. Henson is bringing in some people, and she's getting paid very well for it, but not as much. That movie was
6: shit. In your opinion, you think this is a fair treatment?
8: You know, I I don't know. It's unfair for me to say it. I totally agree with Brett. I feel like I'm not—I don't find it appalling that she's getting 2% of what— brad pitt is is making i think that that should not be the headline of the story though the headline of the story is that it's really hard for black actresses and it took someone like taylor Tyler perry who's a black director and producer to pay a black actress what they should be making and and give and create parts for black actresses that don't exist so i think to that end her 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 story and her plight are very real the that she made less than a lot less than brad pitt of course she made a lot less than brad pitt there aren't people went to that movie to see brad pitt right and it wasn't very good
7: yeah no i i worked at a talent agency for two years and the lowest of six figures in a movie at that kind of role even if it's third billing like there are a lot of clients of all colors and genders who are at that weird weird level they need something big to happen and it's 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 unfortunate that there's way more opportunities for like white actors and to to get right. that role like that cookie role like how would she ever imagine that the role of cookie would ever come about and ask and anyone she got a anything nomination, about yeah right? ask anyone anything about empire it was like, this was a case of like us really believing in this project and everyone telling us we're crap. It had to go to Fox, which, you know, it goes, Fox is the one that stops airing original programming at 10 p.m. as opposed to the other ones that go to 11. Fox is that next tier. I mean, I did, I, my job at the agency was to call for the ratings, and Fox was always a step, for the most part, lower than the other networks until American Idol. Isn't that on Fox? Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's, it's tough.
8: And, and it did, but it, here she made six figures, nothing to sneeze at. She got a nomination, which propelled her career, right? I, I, I'm sure there's more to her story that makes her right, but I'm not arguing yeah. with it. I'm just saying I'm not outraged at the percentage of Brad Pitt.
6: Yeah, I think for me, what stuck out, and it sounds sort of similar to you, Michael, is the lack of opportunity for women of color in Hollywood or in television. Or and on this panel. <laughs> or, or on this panel. Um, and uh, another thing that stuck out to me was woman. the the inequality of her treatment when she was on the movie. Because you know for a fact that Cate Blanchett's every need and desire was taken care of. Right. Um, and the fact that she is the third star in that movie, and she is a her she's a memorable character. Again, she was nominated for best supporting actress, and that she had to. Uh, figure out her own hotel expenses and everything. That is absolutely outrageous right. and inappropriate. And it, it just wouldn't have happened to Cate Blanchett or Brad Pitt. And that is the the unequal treatment is what really is bothering me and doesn't sit with me. Uh, and then, again, back to the the lack of opportunity. And it's been a chronic... Um, almost sort of—I I, want to say—sort of disease in Hollywood that, that women of color, people of color, are so underrepresented on television screens. And we're making strides; we absolutely are. And Empire is a great example for that. But just think: when, when did you know this movie come out? When did Benjamin Button come out? It wasn't that long ago. And
7: 2008.
6: Yeah, there you go. Is that right? You're yes, just, you're right. Okay. I didn't know that. 2000, 2008, um, and it's still, you know even even then 2008 wasn't so long ago and we're still uh we're, we still haven't come as far as i would like for us to ask.
7: here's what it would be they spent way more money on transforming brad pitt into a shriveled raisin baby <coughs> than they did on taraji p henson a real person five
9: four three
10: she's pure alligator pure white
11: Two. albinos that do make it to reproductive age can't find a mate
12: because they look
13: funny.
11: <laughs> albino American Al-
13: Al-
14: In the era of the freak show, when people paid to gawk at people who looked different, two albino African American brothers, whose condition left them with white skin and light colored hair, were exhibited as rarities. They were billed in several ways Eco and Ico the sheep-headed cannibals, two Ecuadorian white savages, ambassadors from Mars. One spiel about them said, the brothers were descended from monkeys in the dark continent with Neanderthal heads, caveman bodies, and tremendous shocks of hair that stand out on their heads like the wigs on Raggedy Ann dolls. But these brothers weren't from Africa, Ecuador, or Mars. Their real names were George and Willie Mews, and they grew up in Truvine, Virginia, near Roanoke. The Sons of a Sharecropper. My guest, journalist Beth Macy, is the author of the new book, True Vine, investigating the story of these brothers that tells a larger story about race, class, and entertainment in the first half of the 20th century. Macy is a former reporter for the Roanoke Times and author of the earlier book, Factory Man. Beth Macy, welcome back to Fresh Air. The Muse brothers performed in freak shows at the height of the freak show era. Would you describe what freak shows were like in the early 20th century and
15: who some of the human exhibits were? Sure. So the circus was the most dominant form of entertainment between 1840 and 1940. And the sideshow was a big part of that. It was a way to get an extra quarter out of a patron. And there would be banners on the side of the tent trying to entice people to pay that extra quarter. And so there would be photos of Eco and Ico, ambassadors from Mars, or...
14: then there was Oda Benga, who is billed as the missing link between human and ape. He was called a pygmy who'd been liberated from the Congo by an American missionary he was first displayed in nineteen oh four at the World's Fair, alongside yeah. Eskimos, Filipinos, and Native Americans. It's he was displayed in the Bronx Zoo with an orangutan. I mean, who right. who was the- Otabenga? He was not really a pygmy liberated from the Congo.
15: Right. They brought him over and they put him in a cage and the New York Times kind of celebrated it. And a few African-American ministers had raised a stink about it and said, you know, we're treated bad enough. Do you have to put us in a cage too? And, um, you know, the Times reflecting very much white attitudes of the Times – uh, said, you know, this is ridiculous. Anybody, everybody's enjoying watching him there, and so finally they were able to talk the, the the zoo into giving him back, and he landed with the family in Lynchburg, Virginia, which is just an hour from Roanoke, where I live. And this was all sort of going on in the background at the same time. Harriet Muse was wondering what had happened to her sons. How were the Muse brothers built over the years? Oh, many different ways. In the beginning, they were just exhibited. They were young children, um, somewhere between the age of 10 and 13. It's, it's hard to say exactly because the records of their ber- birth um, weren't found. But they were exhibited initially as um, Eastman's Monkey Men, Darwin's Missing Links, um, then later, once they were given instruments, and it was oh my gosh, they can actually play these instruments. At first, it was just supposed to be a, a photo prop and kind of a joke. Um, they were then um, displayed as the Ecuadorian savages, and for most of their time um, on the road with carnivals and circuses, they were known as Ico and Ico ambassadors from Mars, where they were said to have been found um, in the Mojave Desert coming out of a spaceship. And during this period
14: freaks you know so-called freaks were discovered and recruited through ads and through traveling recruiters and you you quote some of the ads that say things like wanted freaks novelties strange people any act suitable for a real live pit show wanted fat man midget glass blower magicians anything suitable for high class pit show were pit shows freak shows
15: yeah yeah they, that was one of the names for them also 10 in 1 you could see 10 acts in one
14: Why were albino African Americans like the Muse brothers considered such valuable finds for freak shows?
15: Yeah, well, so they were fairly rare. Um, It just happened that in this family, three of the five children had albinism. Um, Albinism in African Americans is actually um, more common than albinism in European Americans. And um, they were considered pretty good finds, especially in the early years. Now, after, say, the 1920s and 30s, when, when the freak shows started to wane a bit in popularity and, and, and you didn't see them as much coinciding with the disability rights movement, it it wasn't as big a deal. But they were considered a pretty big find kind of right under the pecking order would have been, say, Siamese twins, um, um, a person with no legs who did tricks, and then perhaps albinos. Hmm.
14: So let's talk about the story of the Muse brothers. They were born in a small town near Roanoke, a, a tobacco farming town, and their mother was a sharecropper. Describe the circumstances they were born in.
15: Sure. So it wasn't even really a town. It was just an unincorporated little crossroads, very rural, mostly tobacco growing. And so the African-Americans, most of whom uh, worked in tobacco, were sharecroppers. And the Muse brothers worked the typical sharecropper shift, was which was daylight to dark, um, which they called can see to can't see or sometimes can to can't for short.
14: And the brothers had a lot of
15: health problems
14: because of the albinism. What were some of the health problems that they had, and how did that make life uh, as sharecroppers difficult for them?
15: Right. So being out in the sun all the time would have been really hard. They burnt at kind of the first flash of the sun. And their eyes, um, had they had an oscillating eye condition that was sometimes referred to as dancing eyes. And so they had their vision problems for, from a very young age. And late in life, they were totally blind. But you can imagine any one of those uh, difficulties in in working outside in agricultural um, circumstances. They had to clothe themselves in the heat of summer um, to cover up their skin.
14: There are different versions of how they ended up in a freak show. My understanding is there's two versions of the story. There's
15: two versions of the story. One is the one that every... uh, Every African-American in Roanoke or in Franklin County over the age of, say, 60 would have heard growing up, and they would have heard it as a cautionary tale. These two brothers, not that much unlike you, were snatched up from the circus, so when you go out to the fair or festival, be careful or you might get kidnapped like Ico and Ico. That's the first version of the story that I heard. The second version of the story is a little more complicated, and I did find some documents that give um, some some weight – to the other story that was maybe also whispered but not ever within earshot of the family, and that was because Harriet Muse was this poor single mother um, that perhaps she had... Initially, let them go in exchange for pay, and and the the piece of evidence that I found sort of halfway through the reporting of this story was a was a notice that she may or may not have taken out. We have to remember that she was an illiterate maid and she couldn't read or write. But suddenly, in December of 1914, in Bulmore Magazine, there appears this notice, ostensibly written by her in quotes, that um, her sons, known as Ico and Ico. Um, have gone off with um, some showmen. They were supposed to be returned to her, but one of the showmen took them from the other showmen, and she wanted them back. You know, it was Christmas time. She was expecting them back. She had no idea where they were. They were actually traveling all over the country, and you could you could sort of reading between the lines. She's wondering if she's ever going to see them again. And according to the family. Um, you know, she reached out to law enforcement. She reached out to Humane Society of Virginia trying to get them back. And um, basically no one lifted a finger to help her. Probably because she was African-American. Exactly. I mean, this was a time, this was a really harsh time uh, to be an, a black person in Roanoke, Virginia. There had been um, a, a lynching, a really violent lynching Um Some really severe incidents. There were city codes saying where you could live and where you couldn't live. And um, a lot of violence here. A lot of violence violence here.
16: here. A Port Orchard family says they were shocked to find threatening notes and something that looks like a voodoo doll sent to their home. Those people say they have no idea why they'd be targeted.
0: But they say they found the disturbing items after they hung a native Hawaiian flag outside their home. Only Cairo 7 South Sound reporter Kevin McCarty met with that family today. And Kevin, the mother says she's terrified that somebody might hurt her kids.
9: Well, the fact, Steve, one of the notes she showed me appears to directly threaten her kids. She says all of this started after she hung a flag outside her home that celebrates her native culture. A Port Orchard woman says threatening notes like these began showing up on her front lawn shortly after the family relocated to the area from Hawaii in April.
17: One day opened one up and come to find out it was... Something wrong. Something that um, something hurtful. Something
9: hateful. The woman who asked that we conceal her identity to protect her and her four children says it was after she hung this flag representing native Hawaiians that she first spotted the notes, crumbled into balls and left in her yard. The expletive written notes read We own Hawaii. Just die. You're going to be sorry. Move before something happens to your dirty kids. Another reads, you and your flag is going to burn, and uses the N-word. Nigga! The woman, who asked that we call her Dave, says yesterday she received a package containing a beheaded doll, the arms torn off and bound, feet tied together, the body stabbed with needles with drippings of red wax resembling blood. I need
17: to leave with my kids temporarily because I
9: truly feel that this threat is serious. You need to leave the neighborhood. Yes. Day says she reported all this to the Port Orchard Police and U.S. Postal Service. They're investigating. She says she doesn't think her neighbors or people in Washington are racist, and she has a message for whoever is threatening her family. I feel like I want you to be prosecuted, but that's not my
17: culture. My culture is to forgive, and my culture is to make sure that
18: people will get help.
9: I talked with the Port Orchard police and they tell me they are looking into this case. Day tells me that she's also received threats on her Facebook page, but she also says she's gotten a lot of support from people here and around the country after she posted on her Facebook page showing those threats. Live in Port Orchard, Kevin McCarty, Cairo 7 News.
4: Uh, I don't want us to lose sight that things are getting better. Uh, Each successive generation, seems to be making progress in changing attitudes when it comes to race. It doesn't mean we're in a post-racial society. It doesn't mean that racism is eliminated. But, you know, when I talk to Malia and Sasha, uh, and I listen to their friends and I see them interact, uh, they're better than we are. They're better than we were on these issues. And that's true in every community uh, that I've visited all across the country.
19: Albuquerque mom says a student should get in trouble for what he said to her son. She says the racist attacks have been going on for weeks and teachers did nothing to stomp it. News 13's Marissa Lucero spoke to her today. Jess Josiah Lucero tells us another sixth grader at Taylor Middle School made up a song to make fun of his race and would sing it to him during class. Ahead,
15: mm-hmm.
19: Kimberly Lucero says her son Josiah. That's Has never been in trouble. He's a really happy kid. Friday, Lucero got a call from the principal at Taylor Middle School saying Josiah had thrown another student on the ground. It was not okay to put his hands on the student. He felt he needed to take it into his own hands. Her son says for the last three weeks, this student has harassed him in class. And he would sing, I have a black boy, I own a black boy. Um, He would stare at Josiah, um, laugh at him while he was singing it. Um he even got the teacher's attention at one point. Josiah says he told a security guard on campus. Then Thursday he says the student cursed at him and called him the N-word. 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 Josiah says he had had enough and pushed him at school the next morning.
16: No one should be picked on like that. And I just left it alone for a long time. It made me feel a little bit angry, and it didn't, I didn't want to go back to school because of that.
19: The school suspended Josiah for three days. Lucero says the other student didn't even receive in-school suspension. On the incident report, under possible motivation, the vice principal says Josiah did this to quote get peer attention. Josiah and his mom say that's not true at all.
16: I was thinking that when if I stand up for myself, everybody will really not call me that.
19: I just want him to be able to go to school and know that he's safe and know that he that he matters. We contacted APS. It can't comment or say if this student was disciplined. The district referred us back to the APS handbook, which shows students can be suspended for abusive language, but only after they've gotten in trouble for it twice. Back to you Jess. All right, thank you Marissa Josiah says the school did offer to start mediation for both students and he's considering the offer.
8: White
20: girl, going through my mind. Sarah
4: and Julie too. White girl, Julie, Jack and Sharon. Help me along. The more I see, the more I do. And never-ending controversy. I always say that uh, race is the third rail of American discourse nowadays. You touch it, you step on it, you're dead. And Ray had a great point as we were listening to John's newscast. Nobody can accept an apology anymore.
21: Why is that? I mean, you know, if somebody shows remorse, if they're sorry for something they're did, they've done, I mean, haven't we, we been taught since we were kids, I'm sorry, okay, I accept your apology, let's move on.
4: But that being said, there are things I've been taught since I was a kid, there's words you don't use. Now, we're going to talk with Jessica Sanders in just a moment. She's speaking to us first. And she is the woman, you'll see her everywhere, caught on video in a festival confrontation earlier this summer... Uh, Jessica Sanders says it was wrong to use the word, but plans to fight the case. She's been uh, hit with uh, one or two hate crime charges now over essentially an N-word tirade. Let me explain what happened. The video, which was shot by the other gentleman involved in this, his name is Ernest Krim III. Uh, The video, which Mr. Krim posted to YouTube and Facebook, has now been watched more than 750,000 times, including several times... Uh, at the South Suburban High School, uh, where he teaches. He shows it in his history class and uses it during a discussion of racism in America. So we have uh, Jessica Sanders on the phone here to talk about what happened that day and how she feels about it today. But first, I want you to hear a little bit of the video, which everyone else has seen 750,000-plus times. Here it is. We have sanitized it for our program.
20: What's your call? You, you say it again.
1: F- 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 so if I hit her, what f- happens to me? What You're happens to me? What happens to me? F- my phone out my head, f- Calling me f- f- a f- Y'all me gonna f- let... F- f- what type of God. people are y'all? You f- know me, man. God, I'm God. F- we don't bother.
22: You're, You're acting like... F- oh. you act, you act, act like keep saying. saying keep saying. What
4: did you call my wife? Give me your name, too. Give me your name.
3: Over me. Eric, call me
4: all right, so Mr. Krim is recording the video. Obviously, Mr. Krim sounds pretty amped up there. Uh, Miss uh, Sanders, uh, the Chicago police arrested her at work and only told her they wanted to ask her about something that happened in a few or a few weeks ago. When they took her into custody, she's now been charged with assault because she attempted to apparently swat the phone out. To of swat there, the phone. Hand, yeah. thats assault—and now a couple of hate crime charges on top of that. We walk into the program for clarification and her side of the story. Jessica Sanders joins us here on WLS. Jessica, can you just tell us what led up to that confrontation?
11: I, um, yeah, actually, my, it was just me, my best friend of 14 years before I was a freshman. Um, her nephew was there with us and then another one of our girlfriends. We decided, this was our second game of bags. We had decided to play, we had, we started with two as well. I mean, we had to accumulate the bags. I had, we were in the middle of a game. I had overthrown the bag. My partner was reacting to something that the, the, the one girl I was playing against, he walked over to her, didn't go to retrieve the bag. As soon as I realized that he was not going to retrieve the bag, I just started to walk over. I saw Mrs. Krim walk over towards it. She grabbed it before I did. I walked up to her and I said, excuse me, ma'am, we were using that. Can we just we allow us to finish our game? You can have all eight of our bags when we're finished. We'll let you have all of them. We're leaving. This is our last game. And mind you, the score was... Pretty up there. How how quickly
4: did uh, uh, Jessica? How quickly did it escalate between the dispute over the bags and the the bag game, and and when he pulled out the cell phone and started recording you?
11: It was probably within I don't know twenty seconds, fifteen, twenty seconds. He had his phone in my face. I I let her. I just I gave up. I let her have the bag. She was whining at me, and I said, "You know what? You can have it. Just whatever." I walked away. I said something under my breath which she must've been following me because she heard me. And next thing I knew his, his camera was in my face and he's, what did you call my wife? What did you say? What did you say? And in response to his, and if I had heard, what does that make me? That was me answering his question. I wasn't, I wasn't calling him. I wasn't saying that, that slur at him. I wasn't saying that. I said, it that that makes that's what that makes you if you hit me he said if i hit her what does that make me i said you're that so you say so just to
4: clarify just just for time purposes here you equate the n-word with being called essentially stupid right or you're you're, the n-word here it's wrong me wrong me to use the word what it means is ignorant person if they were caucasian i would have said the same thing
11: Caucasian, Asian, purple, pink—it doesn't matter what color you are. If you're being ignorant, you're being ignorant. And, and we I, were in the middle of a game. I respectfully went up to her, and I just—I don't understand how it got so blown out of proportion that it needed to get this far. I don't. It's just, and I now I've lost—I've lost my best friend because of it. Because now, of
21: now, your friend, your, your friend that you're—you're you're speaking of your friend. You started with this right away. Your friend of 14 years. She is. Uh, she. Right. She's she black
11: she's yeah her her father's african American and his and her mother is white and obviously she's this been, is
21: yep. this has caused a problem with you and her, so she's gone you've got you've got mm-hmm. uh, you know you've got some major fallout from this, so my question to you is is do you think that uh and and things happen especially i mean you're at Margarita fest is I think what they call it right. you guys are playing brags i gotta imagine people are probably pretty amped up, probably having cocktails It's probably warm yeah. but but now I mean there's a good chance I would have to guess that this has probably ruined your life right now, mm mm-hmm.
11: mhm, yeah. For I'm being right now,
4: yeah. What would you like to say to Mr. Krim, assuming that he's listening this morning, Mr. Ernest Krim III and his wife uh, Cassie?
11: I mean, he already has said in I, I'm assuming multiple interviews that he wouldn't accept an apology. And even before I was charged with any hate crime or anything that I'm being charged with, I would have given him an apology because it was wrong of me to use that word because I understand I have nieces and nephews of African-American descent. I have plenty of, of friends. I have I have a very diverse group of friends. I've been like that. I've, I make friends wherever I go. I have friends of every race, every, every ethnicity, everything. And I just, I, I would have, I, I would apologize to him because it was wrong of me to say that to say that specific word i should have called him ignorant i should have said something else but either way i mean he's not going to accept it but it is out there i i would have said it before i got charged and now it i, I mean it was it was wrong with me now it i know was that... wrong with me. i shouldn't i should not have not said that word your and home... i would apologize to both of them
21: your home address is out there your phone is out there, is there... my
11: parents addresses everything's out there Everybody is there right now is...
21: is there any point that uh, i mean do you do you fare for your uh, well-being
11: i not that I fear for my well-being, but you never know who saw what or what strangers mm-hmm. saw it or who who could just recognize me anywhere. And yeah, at first and initially after it happened, I was I did not go home. I was afraid to go home.
4: Jessica I mean, I Sanders. Out, Jessica but. Sanders is here. She is a woman caught in the middle of this firestorm. She used the N-word. It's been caught on tape, viewed uh, seven hundred fifty thousand times. Do you think because uh, of the culture you're immersed in and musical uh, musical culture and other things that like, uh, that uh, maybe the N-word is uh, uh, too easily a uh, part of your vocabulary?
11: Um, yeah, just because of the group of friends that I have. And, yes, I have, I have a very as well as my friend's group. I have a very diverse group of music. I mean, I listen to I listen to rap, I listen to country, I listen to Latin music, I listen to everything. I mean, I, I would never think of using culture. that
4: word. I, that word doesn't exist. I mean, I know it does, and I know I sound pompous for saying so, yeah. but even in a confrontation, I think that I would use different words because there's three or four words in the English language that are totally toxic, That's and a, the N-word is at the top of the yes. list.
11: Yes, and I understand that, and there was, like, Like you had said, that it was Margarita Fest, so there was alcohol involved. I mean, that played a factor as well. It's not that it was just me completely sober going after somebody. And let me me ask you this.
21: I haven't seen the video. I'm, I'm, we've heard it. I've heard the audio of it, but it, yeah. it, it was he confrontational to you because it seems to me. And again, I'm not going to. I'm not going to make any any uh, excuse for anybody he, using any any words like John said. That's on the Mount Rushmore of bad words. However, but, um, it seems to me like like uh, like this guy was pretty amped up coming after you. Am I right was, or am I wrong? Y- yes,
11: yes. I he was irate before. I feel like anything yeah. happened. He kind of had just. this, this demeanor about him and it was just you could just tell because yeah. i was talking to his wife and right away he was in my face with a camera he ran right up to me and i had tried to walk away multiple times and they were right in saying that i was trying to call security mr
4: crim I mean, mr crim said that he uh, received a copy of an anonymous letter sent to his home again using the n-word you didn't uh, have that anything to do with that had, you didn't have anything to no, do with that, that letter did you
11: first, yesterday was the first time i'd ever read
4: mm-hmm. anything
11: like that I, I don't even know where they live
4: yeah. Well, I tell you what, uh, uh, Jessica, maybe we can get Mr. Krim on the air with you sometime. We can sort this whole thing out, and maybe uh, maybe it can all be resolved without having to go through a litigation. How about that? Are you done using the N-word? Uh, yes. <laughs> and you know what? Get off social media. That would probably be
21: a good that step. Yeah. All
3: yeah.
21: right. Well, good luck to you. All
4: right, Jessica. Thank you, so much. Thank you very much. That's uh, Jessica Sanders joining us here this morning on WDLS.
23: It's a piece of Mississippi's dark history marked with a sign so we remember the life and death of Emmett Till.
13: But now one of the historical markers for Till is marked with bullet holes and it's not the first time. WJTV's Mallory Pullen traveled to the Delta to find out what's being done about it.
24: It's a long dusty path aptly named as River Road as it lines the Tallahatchie River. Tucked away on the side of a cotton field, a marker showing where the body of 14-year-old Emmett Till was found. That marker now riddled with bullet holes.
25: I I was very emotional. Um... I DID NOT EXPECT TO um, SEE this uh, this THE MARKER WITH BULLET HOLES IN
24: IT. TILL WAS KILLED IN 1955 AFTER HE SPOKE TO A WHITE WOMAN. TILL'S MOM DECIDED TO HAVE AN OPEN CASKET SHOWING THE WORLD THE MUTILATED BODY OF HER SON. IT'S CONSIDERED A PIVOTAL MOMENT IN THE CIVIL RIGHTS MOVEMENT.
2: I WAS NOT AFRAID.
24: KEVIN WILSON IS A NORTH CAROLINA NATIVE AND A NEW YORK FILM STUDENT. Saturday, he was scouting locations for a recent movie project when he found the river site marker vandalized.
25: I didn't feel unsafe. I just, what I felt was, was uh, immense sadness.
24: He took this picture and it's now gone viral. Some even thought it was photoshopped. But as you can see by the video today, his picture was very much real.
25: Uh, a marker where the murder of Emmett Till, J.W. Milam, lived. And that marker was actually um, well-kept and adorned with flowers. So it was very shocking and sad to drive up to the Emmett Till site where his body was found and to see it filled with bullet holes. And it just kind of spoke to... uh, the racial climate in this country, not just in that area.
24: According to the Emmett Till Interpretive Center, the sign has been vandalized multiple times since 2008, and they continue to replace it, but it's now getting costly.
25: It's just confirmation that we've got a ways to go.
24: According to the center, there have never been any arrests in the vandalisms, but it's not stopping them from continuing to preserve the site.
3: That
25: marker was just uh, evidence that there are still people who are living in, in those areas, who still hold those ideologies dear to their heart, ideologies that we're trying to get away from.
24: In Tallahatchie County, Mallory Pullen, WJTV 12.
13: And if you'd like to donate to replace the sign, go to our website, it's WJTV.com, to find out how. (laughs)
22: For a hundred pad me and a hundred black grapes, so I can lay their ass sea. I need a hundred black creatures with a black sermon to tell from a hundred black Bible. While we send them all to hell, I need a hundred black golf. Black golf, black golf. I need a hundred black.
23: Lincoln Cemetery in Gulfport, Florida, is a historic resting place for many prominent African-Americans. For decades, it's also suffered from neglect. Some locals say that's about race. Others believe it's a little more complicated than that. For NPR's Code Switch team, Quincy Walters of member station WUSF reports.
10: On a sunny, humid Florida afternoon, I'm walking with Chico Cromartie through Lincoln Cemetery. So where are we heading now?
5: We're heading to my grandmother's grave here. And uh, she was buried here in 1996, and uh, I come out here often to visit her grave.
10: But today, Cromarty doesn't stop there. He walks me deeper into the cemetery grounds. The farther back you go, the more unruly the foliage becomes. Vines and roots cover and creep under headstones. Here, Cromarty shows me the grave of a man who was born a slave.
5: This is a John Shorter headstone here. He fought in the Civil War. And he fought in the uh,
8: Spanish-American War.
10: Like charters, many of the graves here are for African-American veterans. The headstones aren't white like they are in Arlington National Cemetery. Most here are weathered gray, green, and black. Cromarty says the people buried here deserve to be remembered, especially in this area.
5: Because African-Americans here are a big part of, of this city.
10: And that's evident by who's buried here. There are black doctors, civil rights activists, educators... But locals say there was a time when the only black folks welcome in this town after dark were the dead ones. You see, when this cemetery was established in 1926, the city of Gulfport was a sundown town, a place where African Americans faced harassment or violence if they dared to be here at night. That history may be one reason why Lincoln has been neglected so long, according to Duke professor Carla Holloway. She's the author of Passed On, African-American Morning Stories.
17: You still have thousands of families who have been denied the opportunity to establish a connection that is a memorial connection, a family ritual of visiting and cleaning and caring for a grave.
10: And that lack of connection has impacted Lincoln Cemetery across generations. In the late 50s, bodies were disinterred from a nearby black cemetery and haphazardly reburied here at Lincoln. Grave markers were lost. Years later, a fire destroyed some cemetery records, leading to more confusion. A 1968 newspaper article reads, Lincoln Cemetery rest in rubbish. Fifty years later, it's still in rough shape.
11: I started looking around, and I was like, this is unacceptable. This is not the way it should be.
10: That's Vanessa Gray, a 22-year-old waitress. She started cleaning the cemetery on her own last year, then created the Lincoln Cemetery Society. It's a group of volunteers who get together and clean when they can. But Gray wonders why the city hasn't done more to help.
11: I don't want to say it's a race thing, but I want to say it's a race thing, and I, and I hate to say it like that.
10: Brian Battaglia, a lawyer with the local NAACP, says there's more to the story. The current owner, Sarley McKinnon III, is black. He bought Lincoln because his parents are buried here. We reached out to McKinnon, but he hasn't responded. Battaglia says McKinnon had no experience managing a cemetery, so he doesn't think race is the main factor in the neglect.
20: It had a lot to do with economics and uh, really their ability to raise the funds necessary to maintain the roadways, to maintain some of the drainage, and obviously the foliage.
10: In 2015, the city of Gulfport started helping with basic maintenance. It periodically mows it and takes out weeds. But NAACP's Bataglia says that even though the cemetery has racked up nearly $30,000 in code enforcement liens, the government can't just take it over.
20: If you look at some of the statutory provisions that address cemeteries, at least here in the state of Florida, there are a lot of gaps.
10: Battaglia recently pushed through a resolution for the city council declaring the historical significance of Lincoln Cemetery. The local NAACP wants the city to maintain Lincoln, so it isn't dependent on volunteers for upkeep. And that would give Gwendolyn Reese some comfort. She's the president of St. Petersburg's African American Heritage Association. She organized a cleanup last year and said it cost about $4,500 to clean and haul out debris. Her family joined the effort.
23: My dad at that time was 86, and my dad was here for eight hours with no break, cleaning and all because his daughter's out here and he doesn't know where.
10: That's because her sister, who died shortly after birth, is buried in the infant section. But there was never a clear marking for that area. That's why Reese says the cemetery needs a historical designation and it needs a new owner. She just wants people to be able to find the graves of their loved ones, like her sisters. For NPR News, I'm Quincy Walters. There are known knowns.
2: There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know.
26: Implicit bias. That term has been used a lot lately after several high-profile shootings of black men by police. And
2: it's
7: also become a divisive topic in this presidential election. The term refers to how attitudes or stereotypes can affect what we say and do without a person being conscious of it.
26: To find out more about where this concept comes from, we turn to Mazarine Banaji. She and another psychologist, Anthony Greenwald, wrote a book called spot, outlining a theory they came up with 20 years ago known as implicit bias. And she told us about the moment she realized our decisions are guided by forces we're not even aware of.
27: So just to go back a little bit to the beginning, in the late 1990s, I did a very simple experiment with Tony Greenwald in which I was to quickly associate dark-skinned faces, faces of black Americans, with negative words. I had to use a computer key whenever I saw a black face or a negative word like devil or bomb, war, things like that. And likewise, there was another key on the keyboard that I had to strike whenever I saw a white face or a good word, a word like love, peace, joy. I was able to do this very easily. But when the test then switched the pairing and I had to use the same computer key to identify a black face with good things and white faces and bad things, my fingers appeared to be frozen on the keyboard. I, I literally could not find the right, the right key. That experience is a humbling one. It is even a humiliating one. Because you come face-to-face with the fact that you are not the person you thought you were.
4: Secretary Clinton, last week you said we've got to do everything possible to... The first
27: time I heard Hillary right Clinton president use the phrase implicit bias in the first debate, it didn't go unnoticed.
14: (laughs) Lester, I think implicit bias is a problem for everyone, not just police. I think, unfortunately, too many of us in our great country um, jump to conclusions about each other. And therefore, I think we need all of us to be asking hard questions about, you know, why am I feeling
27: this way? She answered it that this is not just about the police, this is about all of us, that we ought to be asking ourselves, why do I have this feeling? Welcome to the first and only vice presidential debate of 2016. When I heard Mike Pence speak about implicit bias, it was obvious that he didn't know what it was.
26: Governor when Pence, African-American Governor Pence. police officers involved... In a police action shooting involving an African American, why would Hillary Clinton accuse that African American police officer of implicit bias? That's when I thought,
27: oh, Mike Pence doesn't get it. He thinks that if a black police officer shoots at a black person, that can't be implicit bias. That's how much work we have to do, that we haven't even gotten this simple idea through that women don't hire women and black police officers shoot black people because the bias is implicit. In order to think about where implicit bias comes from, it's a good idea to think about it as a combination of two things. First, our brains, human brains, have a certain way in which we go about picking up information, learning it. If I repeatedly see that doctors are male and nurses are female, I'm going to learn that. But the second part to implicit bias is the culture in which we live. There is a culture that, for whatever reasons, has led to men being surgeons and women being nurses. If I lived in a culture where the opposite happened— I would have the opposite bias. Um, At any moment when we discover things about ourselves or about uh, the world that are new, we have to expect the kind of reaction that we're getting. But the mark of an evolved society is how quickly do we come to terms with it? How quickly do we realize that finding out that we're biased need not mean that we have to remain biased? So I have great hope just because I look at the history of this country, where we used to be, and where we are today, and I see nothing but a path that is on the way towards doing better.
26: Psychologist Mazarin Banaji, who helped come up with the theory of implicit bias.
13: War on the Bronx. Booms and bangs shatter eardrums. And the shuffling of many feet sparks fear among neighbors. A young mother... Paula Clark and her two daughters are rudely awakened by these early morning noises and sounds. I thought that it was terrorism, nothing else, Clark later told a reporter. In a way, it was, but it was state terrorism, where dozens of cops invaded public housing projects as if it were a foreign nation. Why? They were searching for members of gangs, they said. They kicked down doors, used flashbangs or stun grenades, and held mothers and children at gunpoint, while those raids raged on in North Bronx and East Chester. Why now? Simple. The courts have outlawed their notorious unconstitutional stop-and-frisk tactics, and this is how the state responds. Literally, war on the poor. They called it the largest gang raid in modern New York history. Over 700 cops descended on the Williams Bridge neighborhood, where over 70 young men were arrested, some for charges over a decade old. Are gangs that big a problem in New York? Not according to CUNY law professor Babe Howell, who found that gang-motivated and related crime accounted for between one and And 2% in the city between 2000 and 2013. So something else is afoot, isn't it? We have been here before. In 1990, North Carolina's Bureau of Investigation staged Operation Ready Rock when it laid siege to a black neighborhood in Chapel Hill. Over 40 cops, including canine and armed paramilitary forces, attacked the community in the guise of seeking crack cocaine. Almost 100 people were detained, although only 13 were actually arrested. A class-action suit against the government was filed and won, but the damage had already been done. The raid was a clear case of racialized policing. Same as here in the Bronx. But guess what? Being a member of a gang isn't a crime. In fact, the First Amendment to the Constitution allegedly guarantees the right of free association, doesn't it? Apparently, when you're poor or live in a public housing project, the Constitution doesn't apply. From Imprison Nation, this is Mumia Abu Jamal.
16: I'm sorry, so sorry. We begin today's program with a startling apology. This week, the International Association of the Chiefs of Police is holding its annual conference in San Diego. Addressing the some 16,000 police chiefs and other law enforcement officials gathered, IACP President Terrence Cunningham made these remarks.
28: In the past, the laws adopted by our society have required police officers to perform many unpalatable tasks such as ensuring legalized discrimination or even denying the basic rights of citizenship to many of our fellow Americans. While this is no longer the case, this dark side of our shared history has created a generational, almost inherited mistrust between many communities of color and the law enforcement agencies they serve them.
16: Cunningham's formal apology comes at a time of great tension between cops and communities throughout the nation. Some found this an important first step in the right direction. Others believe his comments left much to be desired. For more, we turn now to three guests. Dolores Jones-Brown is a professor at the John Jay College Center on Race, Crime, and Justice. Brian Moriguchi is president of the Professional Peace Officers Association. And finally, Melina Abdullah is a professor and chair of Pan-African Studies at Cal state LA and an organizer with Black Lives Matter. My thanks to all three of you for joining us today. Thank you for having us, Alex. Uh, This organization, the IACP, it's it's been around for more than a century now, and they hold a conference each year bringing together law enforcement pretty much just from about every level, federal, state, local, county, tribal even. Uh, Dolores Jones-Brown, I'm curious, what do you make of the fact that in this current moment, 2016, the President Terrence Cunningham chooses to issue a a formal apology during his four-minute speech?
29: I think that it is an attempt to um, give some credence to the feelings that uh, both in the African-American and broader people of color community are feeling, but the apology for my taste falls short, particularly when um, the president says that it's no longer the case that discriminatory policing takes place. Just last week, San Francisco's police department was cited by the Department of Justice for Violence Against Minorities, and the Department of Justice recommended 272 reforms. Part of the evidence against the department was um, racist uh, emails between members of the police department. And so the, the notion that there is no modern-day impact from the racialized history of policing is um, disingenuous.
16: I, I think that phrase, no longer the case, struck many as, as somewhat... Unawares of current events. Melina Abdullah, I'm curious what you are hearing in terms of how people are responding to these remarks.
17: Right. I just echo what uh, Professor Jones just lifted up that um, in the past, and while this is no longer the case, are two of the most problematic pieces of what he said. Um, Of course, we want the apology for what's happened in the past, but more important than an apology is a change in behavior and a change in the way policing works. So we do want an acknowledgement of um, the history of policing, that it comes from a history of slave catching that was meant to target and oppress, especially black people. Um, However, when we think about that, more Black people are killed at the hands of the police now than they were at the height of the lynching era. Um, we need to look at current conditions and um, be willing to change the way policing works.
16: Brian Moraguchi of the Professional Peace Officers Association. I would like to note that prior to these remarks, we just played from Terrence Cunningham. He did note the the bravery, the dedication, the many many years of service that so many officers throughout this country country uh, have spent. But I know for many officers, his remarks seemed really off base in a completely different direction. How did you hear them?
28: Well, there is a strong push by, by those in the civil rights community to try and spin the narrative that law enforcement today is similar to the law enforcement uh, 50 years ago. And that's, that's not true. Uh, comments like slave catching, your, your previous uh, person mentioned. Police officers today are not out there slave catching. Uh, that 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 is to inspire a racial divide and anger amongst uh, amongst people and police officers. I I don't think that's appropriate at all. Now, in his message, I think it's important to note. I don't have a problem with his apology, uh, but it's important to note that. The police officers today are not the same as they were in the past 50 years ago. Police work today is much better. That doesn't mean we don't have our problems, and that doesn't mean that we don't have racist cops out there. We do. And we need to work together to weed those people out. Sonic's my man,
30: Minnesota. I'm letting the beat ride out because it's a part that I like when it come up. You know what I'm saying? I take this time to say what's up to my family. (laughs) You hear that? You know what I'm saying? For sure. Just observe the excellence of that. That's many. Hey, back. Fall back. Uh Uh-uh. With the guitars. It's hip-hop music. It's good enough to speak for itself. And you got to do right by it. Minnesota. There no black people in Minnesota.
26: The city of Edina has dropped charges of disorderly conduct and failure to obey a traffic signal against Larney Thomas. Thomas, who is African-American, was originally charged after a plain officer stopped him last week for walking in traffic. Part of the incident was captured on video by a witness. It shows Thomas arguing with Lieutenant Tim Olson as Olson holds on to Thomas by his jacket. The video was widely circulated, and some are using it as another example of excessive use of force by police against a black man. The mayor of Edina, James Hovland, issued a statement which said the city will review police protocol to determine how to better approach this type of incident with greater sensitivity in the future. Mayor Hovland joins me on the phone this morning. Good morning, Mayor. How are you? Good morning, Kathy. I'm doing well. Good. Thanks for joining us. You know, for folks who are not familiar with the situation, could you explain what was Larnie Thomas doing wrong?
31: Detective was heading northbound on Xerxes, which is a street that has about uh, fifteen thousand cars a day on it. And as he was heading northbound, north of the cross town, he noticed that cars were stacked up coming south, and uh, couldn't figure out why. And then he saw a guy walking uh, in the middle lane of the middle of the southbound lane, and uh, and holding up traffic, and then people were trying to duck around him. And so uh, recognizing that the guy's safety was at risk and that traffic had backed up as a result of him walking in the southbound lane of traffic, and I think he had headphones on. So the uh, officer intended to get his attention, so he pulled in behind the guy with his lights on and used a car horn to attempt to get his attention. And he turned to look at the officer and continued walking in the lane of traffic. The officer then drove in front of the man to block him from continuing in the southbound lane of traffic. Uh, the guy ignored the officer and walked around the squad car, continued to walk in the lane of traffic. The officer got out of his vehicle and started to follow him and asked him to test him to get out of the lane of traffic and stop. The guy kept walking, told him he could walk anywhere he wanted to walk. The officer caught up with him and grabbed him by the jacket, and that's the start of the video. And I think that's what, what bothers most people, that... Uh, he didn't like the way he was hanging on to him. When I talked to some of the people in the um, uh, African-American community, it felt like it looked like the guy was being humiliated, uh, and it looked like he was treating him as a lesser, lesser human being. But from a protocol standpoint, he asked him to get out of the street. Uh, he didn't. Uh, he told him to get out of the street. He didn't. And the next step in that protocol is that you've got to use some kind of open-handed physical restraint, and that's what he was that's what he was doing.
26: Uh, Mayor, do you think that Lieutenant Olson could have handled the situation in a different fashion?
31: I think he handled it based on what the protocol is. Uh, and that, to me, that's kind of the heart of it. It's just this whole uh, situation where people see, uh, see it different ways. And they're all truths. I mean, there are multiple views, multiple truths. Some people see escalation. Some people see de-escalation. Somebody see a guy who is terrified. Some people see a guy who is belligerent. And I think everybody's right. And so you end up in this sort of tangled morass of facts. You know, as lawyers, that's my other job. uh, You think the facts are vitally important uh, to everyone, and they are. I think they're important to Mr. Thomas. I think they're important to the witnesses, our officer, uh, people that watch this around the world. But they're only seeing the middle part of the story. If we fixate on the facts, we're never going to get to where we want to go here because we've got these multiple truths, these multiple voices that all matter, and when you look at how it looks on that tape, even though that's only the middle of the story, uh, it doesn't look good. And so I think what we need to do as a community is look at these practices and procedures and and figure out how to make sure that people get treated with the proper level of respect. The flip side of it is the police officers. We had a female officer recently who loosened the handcuffs on a guy because they said he said they were too tight. And so she loosened them up. The guy slipped out of uh, handcuffs and beat her unconscious uh, with his handcuffs and left her what he thought was for death. You know, you hear these these tales that the way the world is now where young black men and, and I think black moms of, of black men worry every day that if there's an encounter with a policeman, the, the guy's not coming home at night.
6: Mayor,
26: I appreciate the conversation this morning. Thank you so much. Thank you. We're being hunted
32: every day. It's a silent war against African American people
23: as a whole. The
33: hunt is on. And you're the prey.
17: Rikia Boyd, India Kager, Michelle Cusso. These women are members of a solemn sisterhood. They were black, they were killed by police. Their deaths made headlines, but who they were went largely uncovered by the media. In recent months, there has been much focus on police killings of unarmed black people in the United States, thanks in part to the Black Lives Matter movement. But whether in the media or at protests, female victims are often
12: left out of the conversation. So why does this happen? Here to discuss this, we have Gina Bess, she's a mother of India Kager, who died in a police shooting while sitting in the car in the state of Virginia. From Illinois, Angela Helton. She's the mother of Raquia Boyd, who was shot and killed by an off-duty police officer. Raquia's story is the focal point of a new Fort Lights documentary airing on Al Jazeera.
17: From Phoenix, Arizona, Frances Garrett. She's the mother of Michelle Cusso, a mentally ill woman shot and killed by police while in her home. And in Las Vegas, Nevada, Sharon Cooper. She's the sister of Sandra Bland, who was arrested during a traffic stop and found hanged in her jail cell three days later. Welcome, everyone, to the stream. Thank you.
12: In the last couple of months, I've been looking at stories of black women who had violent altercations with the police and actually were were killed in those violent altercations with police, and they were unarmed at the same time. I've been doing that for Fort Lines. Um, When I was in Chicago, I met up Angela with Martinez, who's your son, and he was talking about Rakia who was one of these young women whose, whose stories doesn't get that much attention. She's become better known over the years. I want to show you that the activist that we spoke to, her name is Paige May, and she tried to explain why are these stories, why are these stories not being told, why are they not being seen. This is Paige May speaking in the upcoming Fort Lines documentary, Black Women's Lives. Have a listen.
27: People don't care about black women. They just don't. We're in the way, in the case of Rikia Boyd. We're, too, we're angry black women in the uh, We're just too angry and too black and too womanly in the case of Sandra Bland. Like, we're either too ex or we're, we're invisible. See, Angela
12: Martinez has been doing everything to make sure that Rikia's name is not forgotten, that her legacy is out there. As her mum, what do you want us to know that's important to what he's doing, the activism that he's doing?
18: Oh, it's, it's very important. Um, it's a couple of things that happened to Rikia that uh, you guys don't know. Um, Rikia was shot, executed, because she laughed at the police, at Dante Servin. And he took her life for that. Uh, what the media saw, uh, Dante Servin fired three shots when my baby got shot you know the little yellow cones went from a to m and you're going to tell me that you only fired three shots when my baby got killed they would not let her the ambulance come to pick her up they had to take out the gurney the police were standing there drinking coffee or whatever they had to take the gurney roll it down the street to put my baby on, they would not move. Okay, uh, the hospital. My daughter laid in the emergency room from one thirty a.m. until six thirty a.m. She was pushed against the wall, and everybody bypassed her. When uh, I forgot what the doctor's name, when she came on duty, she felt that you know Rikia had a faint pulse, so she tried to save her. But she couldn't. Um, You know, I know how you mothers feel. But tell me, have you seen your child? The place where she was shot, brain matter all over the ground, Mm. and her lip gloss because she loved her. Her brains was all over the alley. You know, and that Mm -hmm. hurt me so bad because that was my baby, and. Uh, This is the first interview that I'm giving, and it probably would be the last because I don't give interviews. But it hurt me so, so bad, especially the way that I found out. And until this day, no one has ever apologized for the death of my child. The only thing that they did, they came to her funeral with a bag of bloody hair in her purse and Mm -hmm. gave it to me at her funeral.
12: Well, see, she's gotten. You
18: know, so I'm. So, I'm, d- d- I'm, I'm, Gina, I go ahead.
34: In your, to echo. I haven't. <laughs> I'm sorry.
18: I haven't really grieved. Uh, Not yet. But wh- I know why, Angela?
12: What, like. what, why? This was 2012.
18: I, I, I can't bring myself. I can't. I haven't been to the cemetery since they laid her headstone down, and that's been four years. I haven't been to the cemetery. I can't bring myself. What I'm thinking is my daughter was so outgoing. I'm thinking mm-hmm. that she's visiting someone and she'll be home later. Mm-hmm. I haven't really came to terms terms with her being mm-hmm. gone i I, mm-hmm. I don't know mm-hmm. why
3: when Angela is speaking why. to can I, can yeah, I yes
23: yes um and I, and I apologize, Miss Gina. you know I always want to make sure that I'm clear that yes I, I represent the family of Sandra Bland in the capacity of her sister. Um, but I do have a four-year-old daughter. So from mother to mother, um, I understand that type of hurt. Um, and, and what I'd like to speak to, one, I'd like to say to Miss Angela, um, kudos to you for your courage. Okay, um, I understand Person, how yeah. difficult mm-hmm. it is. Um, yes. Martinez and my older sister have act- have actually forged a bond because we are Chicago-based. Okay. And mm-hmm. so they have taken a lot of strength from one another. And I will tell you, That the reason that families can't bring themselves to go to the cemetery and and can't bring themselves to go and visit their loved ones is because when we are wrapped up in the civil and criminal litigatory matters of the deaths of our loved ones, that is having to relive the tragic events that transpired with them over and over and over again. The trauma.
2: that re-traumatized, is
23: yeah, is mm-hmm. re-traumatized and the mm-hmm. band-aid that is continuously ripped off the wound as soon as it uh, attempts to close a very little bit there is either a development in either one of our individual cases or unfortunately there is a new development that a new family has to it go has to go through whether it be male or female and so we are then re-traumatized by that that is so very real And so the encouragement that I would like to give to you, Miss Angela, and to the rest of you all on the panel, if you haven't done so already, as mothers, we have the tendency to be the nurturers. That is what we do. But self-care is is so important. Yes, Yes, it is. It is vital. It takes time. And I can't tell you what the time frame is on it, but I will tell you that as much as you miss Rakia and Gina and Michelle, you have to take care of yourself because Mm -hmm. you matter. You mm-hmm. really do.
29: Mm-hmm. Mama says police miss you, black
26: people. Is it true? Uh, yeah, is it true? Is that true? Yeah, is it yeah, true? Is that true?
2: And with that, Mayor Bill de Blasio joins us for this week's Ask the Mayor segment. Mr. Mayor, welcome back to WNYC.
35: Thank you very much, Brian.
2: On a very serious note, U.N. Police Commissioner O'Neill surprised a lot of people, I think, by coming to an immediate conclusion about the police killing of 66-year-old Deborah Danner In her home in the Bronx, reportedly suffering from schizophrenia and swinging a baseball bat at the police sergeant, Hugh Barry, in close quarters in her home when Barry responded to a disturbed person call from Danner's neighbor. You said this should never have happened. It's as simple as that. Deborah Danner should be alive right now, period. And, of course – Mr. Mayor, the sergeants' union disagrees. They say, for one thing, you're rushing to judgment before an investigation. Why shouldn't they take that position?
35: Uh, Brian, it's quite clear from what we know. And we know a lot. We don't know everything. I want to emphasize up front there needs to be a full investigation. Then we'll be able to fill in all the facts. But what we do know is pretty substantial. And I met with Commissioner O'Neill just hours after the incident and remember, he is not only our police commissioner, he's a 33-year veteran of the NYPD. He's played every role in the department. And he was adamant that protocol was not followed, training was not followed. And it was very important to tell the people that, because this should not have happened. so uh, there is a balance we have to strike. Absolutely believe in uh, waiting for an investigation to fill in all the blanks. Absolutely believe in due process. But the public had a right to know that this shouldn't have happened, And uh, I really give Commissioner O'Neill tremendous credit for his honesty, his forthrightness. Um, He is a man, I think, New Yorkers have really come to see who speaks directly from the heart and from his experience patrolling the streets of this city. And it was the right thing to do.
2: Um, The Daily News editorial page seems to, for once, back you up on something. It cites NYPD protocols that call for officers to wait for emergency services unit cops to arrive and use a taser if the option is there. But the union president says basically once they were in that situation of her swinging a baseball bat at him in close quarters, he couldn't wait for ESU. Do they have a point?
35: No. Uh, I believe that Commissioner O'Neill is not only the leader of our police department, but the foremost expert on policing in this city. And he is abundantly clear, and I agree with his assessment. Uh, There are multiple options for the sergeant, obviously, Uh, What happened here is a human tragedy. Miss Danner should not have died. She was a 66-year-old woman with a disease. And there was the opportunity to back away. There was the opportunity to wait for the emergency services unit. There was the opportunity to use the taser. She did not present a threat uh, to other people because she was in a contained space. Uh, No, I'm sorry. I mean, again, I will wait for all the details to come out so we can... uh, provide additional analysis, but the reason this one bothers so many New Yorkers is the common sense of it all. A 66-year-old woman with a disease should not end up dead. And by the way, what her sister Jennifer told me is that repeatedly police had come to the very same apartment, did things the exact right way, and gotten her to the hospital uh, appropriately. And I want to remind you, and I said this when I had my press conference, Brian, our police overwhelmingly handle these situations the right way. They're tough situations. I have a lot of respect for our police officers dealing with challenges of mental illness out on the streets. We're trying to do more and more to support them in that, but we had 128,000 calls so far this year for situations involving an emotionally disturbed person. The NYPD handles them constantly and well. And very, very few in any situation with any New Yorker, any adversarial confrontational situation, very rarely does NYPD discharge a weapon 31 times in all of 2015 in a city of 8.5 million people with 36,000 cops. 31 times was there a use of a weapon, and that's every kind of instance, including when criminals pointed weapons at police officers. So there's a lot of restraint. The vast majority of officers follow their training, follow their protocols. That did not happen here.
0: Two years after his release from jail, Khalif Browder hanged himself at his home in the Bronx. He was 22 years
25: old.
30: If I would have just been guilty, then my story would have never been heard. Nobody would have took the time to listen to me. I'd have been just another criminal.
0: Khalif Browder's story has been a powerful force, and some say was the driving force in successfully removing solitary confinement for 16 to 21-year-olds at Rikers Island. An announcement that came just last week, Vanita Browder was a woman who tirelessly fought for criminal justice reform despite a system that failed her and her son. She literally died of a broken heart. Paul Prestia has been with and representing the Browders since the beginning, when the then 16-year-old Khalif Browder was arrested for stealing a backpack and locked up in Rikers. His family could not pay the $3,000 bail. For three years, his trial was postponed. Browder spent 800 days in solitary confinement, often thrown into violent fights with correction officers and other inmates, until the case was dismissed in 2013 for lack of evidence. I was missing school.
30: I wanted to be out there working. I wanted to be around my family and friends.
0: That was Browder on the Pix 11 Morning News talking about the struggle to return to a normal life after Rikers. So difficult, he took his own life at his Bronx home in 2015 while his mother, Vanita, was inside. She discussed it at the America Justice Summit.
18: It was too many memories of what he went through. And no matter how I tried, I just couldn't get through. I'm sorry.
0: Vanita vowed to fight for criminal justice reform despite never getting an apology from the city.
18: The city won't acknowledge it. Rikers, NYPD, the judicial system.
0: Just last week, a victory as she witnessed solitary confinement come to an end at Rikers for 16 to 21 year olds, despite opposition from union leaders. And earlier this month, she sat next to hip-hop mogul Jay-Z. I think you should be incredibly AND YOU ARE INCREDIBLY PROUD OF YOUR SON. WHO IS NOW PRODUCING A SIX-PART DOCUSERIES BASED ON Khalif's STRUGGLE WITHIN THE SYSTEM. I LOOK AT Khalif, PROUDER AS A MODERN-DAY PROPHET. A SERIES WHICH WILL NOW INCLUDE THE LOSS OF VENITA. SHE HAD THAT STRAIN ALSO OF THESE LAWSUITS THAT WERE PENDING. Now, we did reach out to the city law department about those lawsuits and why they were not settled. They would only say it's an ongoing process. However, Melissa Mark Viverito, the city council speaker, an advocate for shutting Rikers down, put out a remarkable statement saying, Vanita Brower, when you were here with her, it was impossible not to feel hopeful about a better future. The docuseries, by the way, is out in 2017. I'm Dan Mandarino, PIX11 News.
5: Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, October 22nd, 2016. So I have been told this is our weekly compensatory call in. The number to dial is six, four, one, seven, one, five, three, six, four, zero. The code is five, six, four. 4943 pound press star 6 if you would like to participate that number again is 6417153640 the code is 564943 pound this is listener-supported counter-racist radio. The blog address is racism-notes.blogspot.com. Racism-notes.blogspot.com. Listener-supported counter-racist radio. The PayPal button is in the top right corner. If you're not into PayPal, drop us an email. We will get you a physical mailing address Huge thanks to all the folks who have supported, invested in us Uh, nearly eight years. I hope the program has been, continues to be worthy of your time and energy. With that, a couple quick things uh, before we get to folks on the phone line, the segment uh, that was from the Young Turks, where they were talking about uh, Taraji P. Henson, the uh, black female actress. Uh, She's on Empire. She's been in a number of different films and projects over the years. Uh, But the most important thing, actress. She is a black female. Uh, In the title for this segment on their site, they had actor tells her story about Hollywood racism. Generally, I don't hear females referred to as actors. They are actresses, but that could be a small point. Maybe it was just a typo. Hmm. Um, Also thought uh, from some of the clips they played this week. Wow. What an amazing return for albino affairs. Uh, that is, uh, based on a book. Uh, I'm going to see if I can get the author as a guest on the program. It's a white woman. I'm going to see if we, uh, she'd be willing to come and speak to us. But wow, what an amazing return for albino affairs. um, In terms of, uh, the other thing, this will be my last comment. Uh, I almost included a segment from the audio this past week. We've been on, this is our 13th consecutive day, uh, broadcasting. Uh, just make sure I get that on the record. Uh, I've stated consistently, do not confuse activity with necessarily being constructive Uh, just because people are engaged in a particular activity does not say that there's some productive value from what is being done. So I always concede that, but uh, we have been here. I appreciate the folks who've tuned in over the last basically two weeks uh, to check out the program. Some folks have been here uh, daily, regularly. I hope it has been uh, of some value Uh, has helped add some uh, purposeful information uh, with the programs we've been doing. Uh, But 13, uh, consecutive days, I almost played a segment from the broadcast we did earlier this week with patrick Phillips he 's the author of Blood at the Root about the Racial Purge in Forsyth Georgia. I wished from that program and i, I always i'm my strongest uh, critic toughest critic, my own toughest critic. From that program, I really wish that, uh, and if we'd had more time, he was only with us for an hour, so you know a good chunk of that was on him. But even within that hour, I wish uh, that we had spent just a little bit more time on the land theft uh, that took place with that. Uh, Just I think that's so important when people have uh, conversations about wealth disparity in this area of the world, or people have conversations about uh, economics, uh, and Black Wall Street will come up that immediate theft of black property or confiscation of black land, black property way below market value so the, the black person is always losing out. That sort of thing is massive because again when you think this happened more well over 250 times that's like large numbers of black people who lose everything and have to start over even if you don't have a lot and you lose everything and have to start over, that can be the sort of thing that can set you back in terms of your family generations to recuperate from that sort of thing. And then you just have thousands and thousands and thousands of black people who have had to do this repeatedly under the system of white supremacy. As Mr. Fuller says, keep them moving. I just thought that was something we should have focused more on, but one of the reasons we didn't get to it is because we did talk about the whites in Forsyth County desecrating the gravesite of black people in Georgia and taking, after they had purged the black citizens from the town, they took their gravestones and made them uh, footsteps at their residences, uh, which some of that was stolen property too. Uh, But I I just thought that that was so important to get that out from the book. And then we hear it confirmed twice in the audio clips this week. And just for the record, I did not know about either of those instances at the time of that broadcast with Patrick Phillips. I found out about the desecration of Emmett Till's uh, memorial, uh, as well as the cemetery uh, that is in disrepair. Uh, I found out about both of those after that broadcast, or I would have mentioned them right then, but just right on time major pattern in the system of white supremacy even in the afterlife you will be abused and mistreated anyway we will get to the phone lines Uh, i'll ask folks if you could use your mute button if you know you are in a noisy environment that would be very helpful to help us kind of minimize some of the noise uh, and preserve the audio quality Uh, again the number is 641 715 four zero and the code is five six four nine four three pound press star six if you would like to participate if we could not use metaphors today that would be super appreciated uh i just have concluded that frequently in conversations on racism people will employ analogies metaphors comparisons that are not that are not equal Uh, And this results in a lot of confusion, misunderstanding, misinformation. I've concluded that racists do this sort of thing deliberately to spread confusion uh, about racism, white supremacy, what it is, how it works. I've concluded that often non-white people, including myself, just uh, in struggling to understand what racism is and how we best want to articulate our views on racism. Sometimes we just make errors. Uh, and fail to, uh, pick the best words or phrasing, uh, to convey our views, uh, and that if we could just be more mindful of metaphors, I think that would be a huge help. So on this program, it's just the Saturday compensatory call in. If we could be mindful and not use metaphors, that would be great. Uh, I will prompt about that as we go. Uh, folks could take about five minutes. Whatever commentary you would like to share, that would be great. Uh, That way everybody can uh, get at least one comment in and then we should have extra time. People can give more than one opinion or view as time permits. Uh, All the folks who dialed in with a hand or the folks who dialed in first uh, with a hand up line should be open and then I'll just go down the order in which people call in. Uh, If you have a hand up, should be with us. Feel free to dial in, call in, excuse me, feel free to share. Have you heard? yes sir
36: okay am I clear that yes sir okay good evening to all um albino is uh, very interesting you know, I remember when I was on um, 13 or so and I'm playing street football with my friends uh, one of whom was an albino you know we would yell motion when the car comes so we just stopped and stand on the side at the car pass and when it passes he continued playing, and it happened to be a cop car passing and he rolled past us, and he got on the loudspeaker and he said, "Look at a bunch," she said, "a bunch of Pepsis playing football with one can of Sprite," and I, you know, caused a, a commotion, and you know, it was just a big deal. But um, yeah, I feel um, really bad for those gentlemen that were treated that way, um, self-human treatment someone from Mars and cheat people. It's terrible. Um, you know, i play tell you that Obama clip, and I, I think it's a very good clip. Um, um, but if you put it in context of white supremacy, what he's really saying is um, white kids today are much better at practicing racism than their parents, you know, than the generations before them, because all well, the stories that's taking place in the schools, it's is just... I mean, it's so many. Um you know, the guy who um had the tape about the lady who um called the black man nigger repeatedly, um, who was filming her. Uh I like how he said he sanitized the tape and um he took away the her saying nigger from the, which really takes out, you know, the whole point of the tape. But what it really sounded like here's this angry black man harassing a white woman because you don't hear her her comments to him. Um, you know, as as you always say, whites and alcohol. You know, I think that's the the worst combination behind whites and guns. And if you put those three together, he would have been one dead nigger that day, cause um, she would have pulled that trigger and swore he was harassing her or something. But um, once again, this entire segment was a lesson for white people who listened to that show. It was a lesson for them, It's teaching and refining kept alluding to it over and over again these these certain words you just cannot say. you're not saying you can't practice racism, you practice racism, but you don't use these words while you're doing it. That's what he was teaching them. on the segment about implicit bias that's all we find it um uh, has nothing to do with our problem. Our problem is racism, white supremacy, and nothing to do with implicit bias, okay They look at us and they can see we're black it's you know it's not some bias they have. You know, implicit bias doesn't make someone go shoot up and vandalize Emmett Till's grave site and stuff after all these years. That's not implicit bias, you know. And um, lastly, um, after hearing Angela Boyd's interview, it was very heartfelt, um, extremely heartfelt. Um, I feel so bad for her. Um, Obviously, all um, done by the police and, you know, the the, the district attorney, whoever handled that case. and um i, I will have more later if, if, if it's time for me.
37: Thank you good evening. Can I be heard? Yes, sir all right um that's I just like to thank you for your, all, all your hard work for uh, all these consecutive days of um the broadcast um I wanted to kind of go over i think um the previous call. It was just talking about the implicit bias and I just believe that's a very, very um, dangerous term. Um, What white people like to do is they'll have a white person that has all these credentials um, to their name. You know, they have all this education. They may be a doctor, a psychologist, or something like that. And then they promote this uh, refined word, um, implicit bias. And then a lot of black people... Uh, Include myself, we're always in search of uh, white validation. So a lot of times we want to seem as though we're educated, that we're um, aware of all current events, uh, we're we're all aware of all the latest trends. So we listen to a lot of media, we listen to a lot of um, things that will not help us get the correct um, understanding of uh, racism, white white supremacy. So you might hear this word just. Continuously repeated over and over, over, implicit bias, implicit bias, and it's and it's just used to uh, confuse us uh, more and more. And um, I think that's the for me the the genius of uh, uh, Neely Fuller Jr. is that he um, a a lot of times black people don't we don't listen to our uh, sometimes we don't listen to our instinct or um use our brains to actually get an understanding so we let these things and uh these things influence us a lot but uh neely fuller jr he i think he's a uh he's really really good at listening to his his brain computer and um you know articulating that for other people to learn from so uh, again i just think that implicit bias is a uh, very very dangerous and uh I hope that I'm, I'm sure it's going to be repeated over and over. Um, also, um, I was listening to one of the um, clips that you played, and I maybe I, sometimes I think my um, uh, I'm not hearing things correctly, but I could have sworn I heard the guys. You know, of course, I know you talked about multiple truths, Gus, um, and of course, <laughs> there's no such thing, and it's just like white people can say anything like it doesn't have to make any logical sense but just because they're white it has some sort of validation and i i believe that the mayor was speaking on a police incident and he said that uh um that if we fixate on the facts if we fixate only on the facts we'll never get to where we need to go i believe that's what he said and that just it makes absolutely no sense and he. And these racists can just say anything they want they can just keep repeating it repeating it and like I said a lot of um black people fall victim to that and and, and might believe that instead of just listening to their um their own uh logical uh their brain basically um and lastly I want to say um I did see um the birth of a nation uh, I don't know if this was talked about a lot but I just thought uh, the the thing that I didn't like about it was that I think it needed more focus on the white woman's um, role in, in white supremacy. I, I think they were kind of, I don't want to say, uh, I just think that wasn't uh, focused on, I think it should have been focused on more. Besides that, I thought it was an a excellent movie. I don't go out and see movies um, too much, but I think it should have focused more on the white women's role. And uh, practicing white supremacy. It seemed like it was just on the um, the white male.
5: Um, that's all I have for now. Thank you for letting me share. Appreciate that. That was uh, the mayor in uh, Adina, Minnesota, uh, Jim Hovland, who was saying, you know, let's not get all concerned about the facts here, where they were talking about the uh, case of a black person being terrorized by enforcement officials up in Minnesota. Again. Other folks that we haven't heard from have commentary?
1: Yes, can you hear me? Yes, sir. Greetings, uh, Gus, and to all the listeners. Um, excellent choice of clips tonight. Um, I'm just going to go straight down the list. I was, The guy, he was talking about being emotional about the bullet holes. It was a marker. And I put emotional in quotations, because that's what he said. I was emotional about bullet holes in this Emmett Till marker. It wasn't, at his, it wasn't Emmett Till's grave site. It was the marker to where his body was found when he was murdered by the white terrorist. And then I also put in quotations, he said he was shocked. And then I put the question, why? Um, um, another question, is it morbid to display Emmett Till's casket, quote-unquote casket? In the new African American Museum. Um, I thought about that when we played that clip because Paradox, the Cold Breakers, that he went to the new African American Museum in Washington, D.C., and have Nick Till's quote unquote casket on display. And I um, hope his body is not in this casket, as you know how white folks like to display the dead bones, I mean, the bones of uh, their victims. Um, And with the history continuing with the history, a lot of history was kind of brought up in the clip tonight about the Civil War vets. Um, I thought it was just a shame that these Civil War vets are um, laid to rest, quote unquote, in a cemetery named after Abraham Lincoln. I'm assuming Lincoln Cemetery Lincoln is, is referring to Abraham Lincoln who betrayed these Civil War vets when he made a deal with the white races in the South with the, wh- and the white races in the North to continue to practice slavery. And uh, films were mentioned, 13th Amendment, I thought it could have been stronger. I mean, 13th, Ava DuVernay's film, I thought it could have been stronger on focusing more on the legalities of the, of the 13th. And not so much the symptoms, but it was still a great effort on her behalf. But these men being betrayed not only by uh, Lincoln, but by society. I'm not shocked at that at all. But I kind of found that kind of interesting and that showed no respect for black veterans who this country would not exist at no time without black veterans. They wouldn't have won no wars. and, And I heard that that was displayed in that world evidence of that is shown in that new African American museum. Um, and the lastly, I, I couldn't help but chuckle. Uh, it is always good when I listen to corporate media or white people's media and I hear terms used on black talk radio and that rape, one racist white male suspect, he did not like the term slave catcher or slave catching. And I kind of feel like, hey, this dude might listen to BTR because I don't hear those terms really being used by anybody outside of this network. And I don't even think the black woman said uh, called them slave catchers, but she mentioned their historical, I I guess we would call it, um, they are um, their uh, professional ancestors as police did enforce slavery. You got the 1850s, Slave Fugitive Act, that they enforce regular police officers, not just the slave patrols. So I found it interesting that he really got angry over the use of that term, which is a correct term to describe what they do in their role in the system. And so that when I see a, a racist suspect get angry like that, that means I'm using the right words. Thank you for allowing me to share.
5: Mr. Scotty Reed, founder of Black Talk Radio Network, for sure. Uh, other folks that uh, we have not heard from, if you had commentary, feel free.
32: Should I be heard?
5: Yes, ma'am.
38: Okay, hi. Thank you for taking my call. Um,
32: I was listening to the commentary, and it just, it it sounds, I'm noticing like in every single clip that you play when they're speaking on how they, mistreat black people they justify it with unconsciousness It's if they don't know what they're doing it's like well and it's everybody you know when people just not knowingly they every time they say something they always make sure they put in they weren't aware whomever it is No, no matter what even when the um guy was um communicating with the girl that was calling the black man a nigger and whomever else he was with i presume At a margarita party, she, um, he gave her words and then she just went on with it. Yeah, because then, you know, I got a lot of black friends and I guess the girl once she lost one of her best friends and multicultural and all this stuff. So we just use nigga, but not nigger. And it's just, it's just really, it's just a trip how they shift blame, put it everywhere else. Like, well, I got it from the black people I don't know anything it, it, it just it's it's interesting they're how they're cleaning it up they do this and then they clean it up and now they're riding on Hillary Clinton's um term um oh I forgot what it was whatever it is that they're just that they're using to um replace racism and um oh some some kind of bias and um now they're using this word. So I remember when she said that, but now they're, they're using that to replace it. So it doesn't sound so harsh. And, um, I also noticed how they tear, they're just, now they're just terrorizing anybody that's not speaking about white. They're just terrorizing them. Like I guess the Hawaiian family, um, when they put their flag up and they did all the stuff, um, in retaliation to her putting the flag up, and she's just crying and scared for her family and all the things that they're saying. Um, in Richmond, they did this to an uh, Indian male. There's um, this is Indian male driving his car. He had this little. Um, I guess they have those little. They keep their hair forever, and they have a little. Uh, I, I don't know whatever they use to cover it. That sheet stuff. That whatever it is. So his head is covered and, um, he's at a stoplight. They throw a beer at him. It's like five of them and, um, at the stoplight in, um, Richmond, they, uh, get out of their car and go in his car because his windows rolled down, just start punching him and they go in and they take his, um, head wrap off and cut his hair off and just keep punching him, and then I guess he's trying, for his finger to get cut, I just assumed that he was trying to stop him from cutting his hair, and now his finger has to get amputated, and they're coming from Texas, and then it said something about Trump Nation, they're coming from Texas, though, but they stay at the hotel, Um, their company pays for them to stay there, and I guess the other guys drove off and left these guys, and then um, the guys, the two guys, they're from Texas, of course, so they're just walking, <laughs> and that's probably how the police um, apprehended them, but they're on bail. But he wants it to be considered a hate crime, the Indian male. And I noticed that sometimes they'll allow it to be a hate crime when it's a non-black person requesting it. But when we're requesting for it to be a hate crime, then, no, it's not hate. It's not hate. It's just whatever, anything else. So I'll mute my line, but it just really weirds me how they're really how they're all coming together to clean everyone else's mess up.
38: Oh thank you for taking my call.
33: Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh greetings to you, Gus, and um, to all the callers and the listeners. Um yeah, this is a it was a really uh great set of clips um that you, you uh, put together this week and also wanted to give you um uh, to laud you for the work you've done in the last two weeks as far as the shows you've put together and the shows that um and, and, you know that you put together and that we've had. They've been very insightful, so I just wanted to let you know that. Um, I know you always say uh, it's always important to make sure that you're using your time in the optimum way. I believe this program is uh, the optimal way to spend a, a lot of my time, which is why I do, so thank you for that. Um, also, uh, the clip that you played about the... About the freaks, uh where they talked about Ota Benga and um the albino twins that were kidnapped from their mother um I noticed that the person who was being interviewed, the white female, she laughed at um at one point when she was talking about odabangaga, and that's something that I try to pay pay attention to um simply because I think it's important I think that these these are when they do that when white people do that it's like a tick they have and it's just something that they really can't control simply because they're so used to being in a position of um of dominance as far as just you know how the hierarchy of our society is set up so it's really like a subconscious thing that's automatic i think just because they are they're racist all the time and there's certain things i think they just can't control and, and the aspect of them chuckling or laughing especially when talking about um different forms of brutality um, meted out to black people, um, especially when she laughed at that particular time talking about Oda Benga, just really um, stood out to me. Also, uh, the clip uh, about Taraji Henson, when she was in uh, the Curious Case of Benjamin Button and she only got paid 3% of what Brad Pitt was getting paid and also had to pay for her own hotel room, Um, you know, it just sounds to me like a slave wage, essentially, I mean, 3% <laughs> is just out of control, excuse me. Um... <clears throat> to get paid so little compared to him. Um, but Hey, it's a system of white supremacy. Um, every, every form of employment under the system is basically a plantation in varying forms. And that was just her slave wage. Um, I just found it just very interesting. Um, that particular clip as well. And then the one you played about the young black male that was terrorized by that little white rat, um, really shows the importance of talking to our children about racism as early as possible. Um, just because white people do that with their children, they teach them racism as early as possible. So I think for black people, the only defense that we would have is to educate our children as early as possible so that they have a better understanding of what they're going to face. And we can give them counter racist strategies that they can utilize to protect themselves because a lot of the time that they're spending since, uh, 70% of, our uh, uh, schools in this country, public schools or schools in this country are run by white women and 80% total uh white people. That includes male and females. Um, we have to equip them for what they're going to deal with. And I think that that clip kind of brings that home as far as the importance of that and the fact that um, there's no such thing as a non-racist white person. Their young children are racist to the elderly are racist to the mentally ill are racist. They're all racist. Um, the... Oh, there was a, something that happened last week that I found very interesting in New York City. In Times Square, there was um, a white female that was caught attempting to light a Molotov cocktail. Um, the police determined that she was mentally ill, and instead of them shooting her or taking her to jail, they took her to the hospital. And I just find that there's too many incidences of mentally ill or even disabled black males who are gunned down in the street like animals and uh, this white female is in Times Square, crowded Times Square with a Molotov cocktail attempting to light it. And who knows where she was going to throw it. And no one you know, shot her at all. She was taken to the hospital like you would do with anyone else who was mentally ill. Um, so, again, you know, our lives are just expendable in the system. And, um, you know, you cannot be mentally ill and black in the system and expect any treatment that's going to be different from any other black person. Um, thank you. And I'll meet my line.
5: Uh, other folks who dialed in who have a hand up have commentary to share. Can I be heard? Yes, ma'am.
17: Uh, good evening to guests and the callers. Uh, this is um, one of the female callers from D.C. Um, I haven't called in quite some time or called called in in quite some time, um, but I've definitely been listening to the show, and Gus, you have really, really put in work um, over the past couple weeks, um, both you and all of the callers, uh, all of the regulars that have called in with their comments and questions, they've been wonderful, so I've definitely enjoyed that, unfortunately, I can't often um, tune in live, because it would Probably have to be me hiding out in the bathroom for three hours uh, so that you guys don't hear um, my son in the background uh, when the program is going on. But I wanted to, I, I kind of tuned in a little bit late, so I, uh, I, I didn't hear many of the clips, so I can't comment on too many of them, but I was hoping that I could comment on um, area three, the area of entertainment, if that's possible. Would that be okay? Sure okay, um so Gus, I had sent you earlier this week um a uh a YouTube link to a commercial a Coles commercial um that um I don't know if you had an opportunity to see, but it was something that was just really uh, just odd to me um and for the callers, the clip that I had sent, and some of you may have seen this already, but Coles is a department store in this in this area and and from what I understand, it's actually nationwide um But it's a white woman who is uh, at a sort of a, she's sort of in this dreamlike state, and she's at a tailgate party, it seems, and she's kind of walking through the tailgate party in sort of like a runway-type situation. And she's wearing um, Green Bay Packers attire. Um, The opposing team, as she's kind of walking through the tailgate party as though it's her runway, um, the opposing team is Minnesota Vikings. So it's this whole like, uh, sort of this this. Uh, I don't know if it's like this this. Um, I don't know. I'm sorry. I'm having a hard time uh, explaining it, but it's just this very weird dreamlike situation. And then uh, a few moments later, you hear a little girl in the background yelling to the woman, um, not yelling to her, but she's she's saying "Mommy, Mommy," and it's her non-white daughter. Who is in the background with her black father, who's also holding uh her non white brother, and she kind of like the the white woman springs back to reality and she just sort of realizes it's just it's such an odd I'm explaining it weird, but such an odd, odd commercial that seems like It makes no sense whatsoever, but is also, like, extremely deliberate. I don't know. I I know that, you know, it's more important to read than to watch television. But for anybody that's seen the commercial or would be interested in seeing it, if you go to YouTube and if you type in, uh, I think the variation of words that I put in was cold commercial enemy tailgate, which I thought was weird in and of itself. But if you type those words in, it's the first um, result that comes up. It's really strange, and I just I felt like this emphasis on the ball games. Rest in peace, Dr. Francis Criswell. but also just this weird thing about Wisconsin. And um, if from what if my if my um, understanding is correct, um, I think that Wisconsin incarcerates the largest number of black males. Also, both Minnesota and Wisconsin having. Um, a large number of tragic arrangements it's just such an odd commercial and i don't understand it and it's it's peculiar to me so if anybody's interested in seeing it i would definitely encourage because i don't know what's going on and um it's just it's something that's kind of perplexed me obviously um for the past couple of weeks since i saw it um but just kind of staying in line with um area 3 the area of entertainment um just one other thing is I uh, recently saw, um, I don't know if anybody has Netflix, but there is an episode of um, a show called Black Mirror, which had been um, a British show that was broadcast on the BBC several years ago. Uh, Netflix, I guess, bought it out and so now they've put the third season uh, on Netflix. And I watched the first episode this evening and it was really, really interesting. Um, Black Mirror is sort of a sci-fi program that each episode is, uh, one story. So you don't have to have seen any of the previous seasons or any of the previous episodes to just get that one. It's sort of like this little vignette. And, um, This one, the first one of season three called, I think it's called Nosedive, was really interesting. And from the previous two seasons when it was with the BBC, there wasn't this huge emphasis on race or placement of black people within the context of the story. But now that Netflix has taken it over, it's really, really strange. Um, And... That, like I said, that I've only seen that first episode, but that first episode was really interesting, and um, it, like I said, it's sort of this sci-fi show that um, talks about sort of how technology is going to be sort of the undoing of man, but um, if anybody's interested in checking it out, that first one was really riveting um, in terms of how they placed black people within the context of the, of the episode, sort of this... Um, I got this Crystal Tyler vibe when Crystal Tyler was on. See if anybody remembers from Delete Money, how she was just talking about how Black people keep it real, and that's why she had Black friends was because you know they told it like it was. White people, you know, would you know would uh, uh, keep their comments to themselves. To some she had some little spin on it that she would that she said that was strange and. I there's a lot of things to say that were strange, but, um, anyway, so if anybody checks it out, I understand, I know reading is so much more important than watching television and I have two-faced racism sitting on my table right now that I intend to read this week, but, um, I just had a chaotic week last week and so I totally indulged in television, uh, this weekend, so, um, Yeah, definitely check it out. Gus, also to you. I don't know if you have a Netflix account, but we could probably um, help you out. Our family could probably help you out if you need one. So definitely let us know if you're interested in checking out any of that and need that. So um, anyway, I'll go ahead and mute my line. Uh, Thank you to everybody. Bye-bye.
5: Good hearing from you. Two-Faced Racism. That is a grand one. They have a whole chapter on uh, racism in uh, the food service industry. Um, I've just I posted the link for the Coles commercial on my Facebook page. So if people want to check... It's like 30 seconds, so if you uh, want to check it out. Um, I'd say the only thing about the Coles commercial that uh, stuck out to me was that the white woman is in charge. Like, her little tragic arrangement uh, motley crew, they are behind her. It's like she's not walking Uh, side-by-side with her spouse or her little mulatto children. Uh, She's just out in front striding, and then she ends up at the wrong barbecue or cookout or whatever for the opposing team, and her uh, family, they're calling her back like, uh, you went too far, you went to the wrong place, and then she turns around and goes back. But at that sort of theme where you're still not seeing... Like if you see normal commercials or TV with a white family, white man, white woman, they're together and doing whatever with their children, you're still not getting that image. That's why I say the racism always comes through. The white woman is like she's walking by herself as some sort of empress or queen. Uh, and She's just got her little, you know, followers uh, trailing uh, behind her. Uh, that's that's kind of what I took away from it. And what you said about Wisconsin being very significant, too, in terms of that, that part. Of, I think it's Wisconsin and Minnesota, so... Oh. Right on. Other folks uh, have commentary that they wanted to uh, share anybody. We haven't heard from if you had commentary.
22: Can I be heard? Yes. Sir. <clears throat> Greetings, everyone. Uh, several things come to my mind. I get some kind of feedback.
5: Uh, just echoed, uh, I think somebody might've had speakerphone, but it should be good now. Proceed, sir.
22: Okay. Uh, first, uh, thing comes to my mind is, uh, the, uh, white female who attacked the black couple, uh, on how, uh, I think the, the program that she was allowed to come on, uh, purposely, uh were attempting to assist her in some sort of way it sounded like uh to uh basically uh uh assist her because she's in some sort of some, some sort of trouble legally uh and that's what actually is the motivating factor uh talking about uh, some uh, uh apology uh typical uh shrewd strategy of a white person especially a white female uh then it's the uh, idea of hey I am a victim also uh that plays a part in uh this uh charade and uh I I'm happy uh that the uh the couple have not gave any instance that they are going to uh feel sorry for her or Or, uh, you know, something talking about forgiving her for anything. I hope not anyway. Uh, uh, Oh, I I just wanted to ask a question. Has anybody heard this commercial? Uh, I've seen it quite a bit to where these two white males uh, are conversating with one another. And one of them is, they're, they're, they're changing this phrase called flipping a man's meat quote-unquote, on this commercial. I don't know if anybody has heard this. I've heard it several times uh, over the course of uh, maybe a month or so. Uh, I don't know what they're advertising uh, as far as a quote-unquote product, but I do know they're advertising homosexuality. <laughs> uh, matter of fact, my son told me that one of the white males, it actually is an admitted homosexual. Uh, and I, I, I think that's interesting from the standpoint on how sex, especially sexual confusion is used as a weapon against non white people, uh, because they know that we are, uh, influenced by white people and what they say and what they do, uh, because a lot of us, uh, assume and or expect white people to be very interesting, and so that's why a lot of things that they do we follow uh albeit uh non constructive uh so just something to uh observe when it comes around when you see this commercial very very interesting commercial it actually it makes it makes my stomach curdle in the wrong way just to see it you know what they're talking about uh uh it, uh last but not least uh uh i i think on my way when i i, tu- I uh, tuned into the program yesterday i was on my way coming home from uh uh the game that uh as a coach on the on this high school team that i coach on and uh this morning uh received a uh a text message that went to uh i guess the head football coach on someone who was not
39: pleased
22: that we actually, uh, that game solidified a, uh, district title, which, you know, advances you in the, in the state where you, where you are at. And this is basically, uh, a text that was sent. Uh, it's, it's a paragraph long. Uh, I hope, uh, that I can pull it up in due time. Uh, Someone wasn't very happy about that taking place. I just wanted to read it to the uh, to the audience. Uh, Anyway, I'm trying to find it, but I can't find it. But uh, anyway, uh, just just give me some time, Gus. Later on, and I, I I'll be able to find it and read it. It's only taking about another five minutes uh it's kind of interesting i don't know if it was a white person or a non-white person uh it doesn't solidify on it but uh 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 oh uh one thing about uh mr uh i think mr reed mentioned about the the, the uh, casket of uh emmett till now from my studies on uh emmett till and once his body was uh Turned over from the police to uh, it was turned over to a funeral home, and the mother had to come from Chicago. Uh, now that particular, it, I, I believe he was placed in at least two caskets. Uh, the original casket, I think they transferred his body to another casket. Now it may be possible that 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 original casket is the one that's being on display. Right now, not the one he's buried in. I could be wrong, but I I, I think I think they uh, transferred the body when because because they sent it they sent it from uh, that rural part of Mississippi to Chicago, and that's when the body was transferred to uh, I think the final casket that he was to be buried in, and probably I'm not sure probably that that original casket. Uh, which is kinda like some something that you transport a body in, not necessarily for burial. Uh that's that's probably the one that was on this that's on display. I'm not hundred percent sure about that but that's but probably the one that's on display. But that's it and, and uh maybe I get a chance to read the this text uh a, a little bit later on. Thank you.
5: Uh, Right on. Uh, other folks that we haven't heard from feel free, I did want to point out that situation in Illinois the Margarita Festival from this summer where the race soldier, uh, white woman spit on the black couple and called them nigger about a dozen times, now she's facing two felonies, I thought it was astronomical Uh, I think we had two great illustrations of black self-respect, the black uh, people that were going out and cleaning up, volunteering to clean up the black cemetery in Florida, A plus, like double A pluses for uh, black self respect. I could hear Dr. Wellesley saying not throwing down trash in black areas and everybody getting an A plus in sweeping. uh, A plus. Uh, But the portion where it said that the victim, the black male who was terrorized, that he recorded the incident and is using it in his class to talk about the history and context of racism in this part of the world. I thought that was amazing. Like we talked about that before. I just wanted to make sure that that gets uh, pointed out. That is A-plus in my opinion. Uh, other folks uh, that we have not heard from, if you had commentary, feel free. Can I
38: have Navi Yes, ma'am. Good evening, everyone. Um, let's see. I, I hate I missed that clip on a vinyl affair. Um, but I'll get it later. I wanted to say that, okay, in summary, it's been two years and five months that I've been trying to deconize the immediate political environment in my tiny community. And um, most of my time was spent trying to clean up the elections administration office where they count the votes, because that's where all most of the felonies were committed. Um, and it's, it's almost there. There's some people left over from the other administration, but... I just we're just going to have to keep an eye on them through this next election. But uh, everyone is a little bit more vigilant, and we've done a lot of cleaning up, and so there's not as much election stuff as there was previously. Um, But what I have to say is that uh, so I've been going to and fro around the state of Texas, uh, trying to get a little you know understand how do how does government work? How do I clean up my little neighborhood? And uh how do, I was a metaphor. How do I stop the corruption in the place that I live here in Texas? Um, and and so I, I finally state official, state officials from the Capitol have you know, they've come out and we speak and we talk last week and they say, Well, you know, we have a lot of uh, mistreatment of the voters in the state of Texas, uh, non white voters. And uh, and they said, uh, unfortunately we we have to agree with you that uh, this may be the worst place in Texas. So I, now I see why it's so difficult. It really is much more difficult than I thought to clean up our local community of corruption. But um, what happened was the administration at the HBCU, they were not allowing me to speak to the teachers and the students and tell them about voting and registering to vote, and that we have a sheriff here who may be hiding all that murderer in my opinion. But um, they were letting the white Republicans in. And I just didn't understand what was going on. And, I, and then they just were resisting me. This is an HBCU, I'm a black person, I went to school here. My goodness, it doesn't make any sense that I can't speak to the students. But what happened was the white person who came down, he sends me back an email and tells me, and in the email, his grandfather, says, go talk to this black man who is a vice president of administration at the HBCU because he was a great student of mine when he was younger. He was such a great singer. I actually took him with me to China. He sang for the Chinese. They were so impressed with him. And actually, he was just back here in February, and he sang for us again. And I'm like, wow, so the black people at the HBCU have to have permission from the white people at an HWCU to help another black person. <laughs> I'm I'm just so, oh, I'm so, I'm so, that's so awful to me that I can't even act on it. So I'm just sitting here with this email saying, how disgusting. He only remembers this brilliant black person for his entertainment capacity. And he took him all over the world to sing to people, I guess, much like Ms. Condoleezza Rice, you know, when she's just here for entertainment purposes only. So anyway, that was one thing. And we had a, oh, I should go past it. We had a candidate for him today. So we have an enforcement official who I really like. He's black. And the, we have a white person who wants to get rid of him because he's gone into his office and he's seen things on the board like we will not ticket the students today. As a matter of fact, we will not ticket anyone in this neighborhood today at all. He goes, That's selective enforcement. That's awful. You can't just say you're not going to ticket these students at this HBCU today. So this guy says you should pick me because I get up every day, and the first thing I do is check the lead site for tips in the county so that I can go out and enforce the law. We must have law and order. I'm like, that is the scariest person I have ever seen. But anyway, that's how it's going. We have... um, we have people who are running in the election to replace the sheriff, the one, Miss Bland, when uh, Miss Bland, uh, who was over the jail, when Miss Bland died. But these are not professional politicians, and I'm not a professional politician, and so it, it's a little difficult. But here it is. It's two years, five months later, and now we're going to see what, um, see where it's going.
5: Fascinating. That is uh The system of white supremacy on display Uh, black people at an hbcu needing permission from other whites to address or aid a black person or needing authorization from whites uh, about how they're going to proceed that is the system of white supremacy Uh, and i would submit logical reason why the person most to blame is not any of these black folks regardless of what they do say they don't let you come talk about voting or whatever person that is most to blame always racist man, racist woman, racist child. But that is that way, you know, you ran directly into racism in my opinion, when it's uh, a white person has to give permission. Uh, anybody else that we have not heard from who had commentary? Yeah, have have you heard? Heard? Go
29: ahead, okay, um, have heard? Yes, ma'am. Okay. Um, Thank you to the gentleman that uh, let me speak. So I'll be real quick. Uh, hello to you, Gus, the host, to all the callers and listeners. Hello, so, just a couple of things I wanted to say. Um, the, the the clip on the young man who's set in prison for three years and then came home, committed suicide, and then his mother just died was earlier this week. Is just you know just it's just so sad, and it was something that they they said in the clip, like closing the place down. But I'm just like. That's the policy, you know. Unfortunately, this young man, uh, Mr. Browder, you know, he's not the only one that, you know, at that time that was, you know, sitting in prison uh, two or three years waiting waiting to be booked, if you, if, if you really get down to it, and have bail set. Well, in this case, he, you know, I understand he couldn't raise money for bail, but, you know, we know there are others who are sitting in prison and who have been sitting in prison for these two, three years, you know, waiting um for, uh, you know, for their time to come in court. And so, I mean, it's just sad. It is just really sad that I read so I think that his mother found this body and now, you know, she's dead from a broken heart, you know, for a system that just, you know, I want to say the system failed him, but the reality is the system wasn't designed to work for us anyway. So the system did what the system does to, uh black people. You know, but and I'm just saying, you know, it's just a very sad story. <laughs> Excuse me. Um, the to listen to the mother of Rekia Boyd and basically it's just another sad story, almost beyond sad. And basically those police just let her die. You know, when the the part about the the the, the police not moving out the way, the ambulance, what they had to do to get their gurney down there to get her and then She's taken to a hospital, and, and here's the thing I think that we, we as black people must pay attention to. You saw how, see how, saw how that worked together. The police wouldn't get out. First They the mother said that Rachel, her daughter, was shot because she laughed at the police. Okay, so they let her lay out on the street. Police wouldn't get out the way, would not let the ambulance access to this young lady. And then the mother said her brain mattered all over the alley, all over the alley. They take her to the hospital, you know, her head's literally blown off, and, you know, whoever the charged doctor in the ER says, okay, lay her up against the wall, you know, and, and a doctor comes in, according to the mother, 6: 6.30 in the morning, a new shift. Doctor comes in and tries to save her, but it's too late. So they they basically let her die, and this is how all this stuff is connected. Phone calls are made, things are said. Yeah, they come in, push them up against the wall, and just leave them there. You know? Oh my God, it is. I I just it's just like there are no words for it. So I mean, it's just beyond sad. The Taraji Henson story or the clip on her, I, you know, I just kind of like the guy was saying, you know, something about he. Almost to me, like well, basically, I'm just really said that, you know, it seemed like he was saying that she's complaining that she, you know, he she's not getting money like Brad Pitt, and I'm sort of, I said, like, I don't necessarily think that's the case, but I think that she said she should have got more money, and I mean, it was just disgusting to hear that here she's building a movie and she's got to make her own hotel arrangements and pay for her own hotel. And, you know, I noticed in, in the news lately, there's been about how these black actors and actresses, and particularly black actresses, are getting these movie parts and basically almost it, being, being paid minimum wage for the work that they do, you know. And sometimes, whether we like it or not, um, these are could be some of the people who carry some of these films, you know. <laughs> it's really um, sad about the police apology. I think it was the international police, whatever, that, you know, supposed to apolog- apologize to black people for the historical stuff they've done. Now. And, you know, we talk about history that's in the past. So they, you know, apologizes for historical stuff. And i was like, well, no, it's still going on. But my thing is, why is the police, I mean, you know, making this apology? I just feel that it was just all set up. You, you probably somewhere having a meeting you got these police officers there somebody says okay yeah you know we'll enter, you know give them an apology and um i don't know if it was wrong or somebody earlier said or either um thomas of the year said how we need to be careful because i i saw that on facebook and some of the comments that i was reading about black people like oh my god this is really good this is the start you know and i'm just like you know i'm like you know part of me like first say the police teachers apologizing when with actually what they're doing and I'm gonna say this right but what they're doing is basically carrying out policy. Where whether it's the mayor, the governor, even possibly come out from the White House, you know, of uh, this is what this is what you do and this is how you treat these people. I think it was Ron said what a woman who's trying to light a Molotov cocktail in the middle of Times so or we're in New York and you know, since New York is so busy and she gets taken to uh, the hospital, whereas Ms. Danner was was killed. And he, you know, so it, it's just like to me, it's, it's these are things that they do and it, I want to say it knocks us off our game, but I don't let the city know if we own our game, but let me just say that it does add to the confusion. The story about the boy in the school, I know black parents, all black parents can't remember, but my advocate today or advocacy today is just to come up out of these schools uh, for the black child to be suspended a couple of days or three days and nothing happens to the white child. And then when you go talk to the principal, you see side the, the principal is on. Oh, basically the white child, you wasn't doing anything wrong. Oh, it's your child. And, I mean, we keep, and I know all parents can't, you know, put their kids in charter schools. All parents can't homeschool, but we just have to do, something, in my opinion, to get our children out of these schools. Because basically, what these schools are doing is what they today—that's their um, their mandate. You know, that basically you destroy these kids, you suspend them from school, which starts with record. And, you know, especially when you've got stories of kindergarten being suspended from school, or what have you, you know, that's the start of a record. And, it, you know, it just keeps going, it keeps going, it keeps exploding. So, I, you know, I just wanted to make uh, a comment on that. It was, it was some clip, I think, the first clip you played, but I can't remember what it was. But anyway, if it comes back to me, um, so I just wanted to make those few um, comments. So I'll mute myself, and thank you for taking my call.
13: Other folks Can I be here? here, yes sir
40: okay, uh greetings everybody. um let's just uh listen to the clips about the uh about the jessica sanders uh incident where the woman is being charged with hate crime, and you know I'm from Chicago, so it's you know right here and it's interesting um I think the retired firefighter had mentioned about the uh about the host giving her a break when uh she was uh be interview. Well, uh that was the John and Ray show. It's a show on uh, WS radio here in Chicago and it's like one of the most white conservative radio shows you can hear in Chicago. Uh it's also the radio show that uh hosts Rush Limbaugh here. So, uh obviously that's a you know that's a telltale sign on how and why they interview her, you know, just like that, you know, trying to make her a victim and at the same time trying to teach her how to be codified in racism. So, uh, it was a very interesting interview there. Uh, also too, I think somebody mentioned about, uh, Emmett Till's body. Well, Emmett Till's body is, is buried out here in uh Borough cemetery. in also, um, I think I mentioned this earlier about uh, a couple of years ago, there was a, there was a grave reselling plot, uh, Great reselling scheme that was happening in, uh, in Borough Cemetery a couple of years ago. So, and, and I just remember too, that, uh, they had exhumed in body. Um, I think about 10 years ago, I think they reopened the investigation or something like that. And they have to exhume his body again. So, you know, more, more desecrating of, uh, black bodies for some reason or another, you know, in the, the namesake of, you know, reopening a sixty year investigation where we know who killed Till, but you know, that's another story. So but um yeah that was uh yeah, that was pretty interesting. Oh and uh, the uh uh the the bias comment uh that they were talking about. Well as you know uh racists hate the word race racism, uh and especially hate the word right white supremacy. Uh, so they want to soften the image up uh, to talk, you know, to basically, you know, make them uh, all, you know, not look all that bad. So uh, I've always said that white people don't want a real conversation about racism. And this is why they avoid, you know, that, that topic. So it's like, um, you know, just listen to the show. I've been only listening to the show since August. And you know, with the, with the white guests that have come on, yeah, you can tell that white people really don't want to have a real conversation about racism. So it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic there. So
5: um, I think that's about it for me. I'll, uh, I'll mute my line. Before we nab other folks we haven't heard from just with that implicit bias, I think another key component of it is they insist it's mandatory. We all have implicit bias. So black people, everybody has implicit bias impacting their behavior. I think that's very important because it suggests everybody is racist. It's not anything just exclusive to individuals classified as white. I think that's another key component. Uh, Other folks that we haven't heard from have commentary they wanted to share. You're a
39: little low. If you could speak up, please. Can you hear me now, Gus? Yes, sir. Yes, thank you, sir. Uh, greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Uh, there was a, a few uh, articles that I had read on. Uh, the first was, I believe it was over in Kansas, or Kansas City, where there was a, a suspected race soldier in a Walmart approached a black female and, uh, attempted to take her four month old child away from her. And then, uh, I think he started to put, he started to take the car seat and she was holding on to the other end. And it got so bad to the point that some, uh, other uh, shoppers in the checkout line had, I guess, uh, pin them down because, the report said that he put his hands on the uh, the baby's neck and tried to strangle the, the black child. And um, they said, like, on some of the reports, they were saying this guy was a, a so-called former pastor. But uh, he ended up getting arrested. I, don't, I think he got an assault charge or something. But I, I started out with that one because it was another assault. Well, it was a, a black male that was threatening the Publix in uh Tennessee, like he had a gun pulled on him right like right in the store and the uh the white guy said um, something about nigger, I'll kill you right here, like stop following me. And you know, the guy in the video he was saying he wasn't doing anything, he was just trying to get some uh collect some food items. But they say like the guy, the white guy, he left the store and he went home and the son said, this guy tried to kill him. So in the report, I think in that one, they was trying to make it seem like he was, uh, I guess, so-called mentally ill or something, mentally challenged. But they didn't bring up anything about, you know, a hate crime or, you know, whatever terms they use in a legal sense. And uh, there was one last thing was, it was a video where uh, it was a, reporter over in Charlotte, I think, North Carolina. And, uh, like, it was on video, too. It was a a white, a young white male, uh, suspected racist. He was sitting down on the, uh, the concrete on the sidewalk. And the reporter, you know, he was walking up to him, and then he said, like, what did you say to me? Like, what did you call me? And he said, (laughs) he tried tried to be slick. Like, oh, I, I said, uh, he, he said, "I said nasty or something." He said, "No, that's I don't think that's the word you said." And he said, "Oh, you, you mean nigger?" And then, uh, yeah, that's the that's the word you called me. And then he and he said, "Well, what's the big deal? You know, like what's the what's the problem?" And now he, you know, he uh, outside of the van, the news van, and his crew is with him and everything. Like they got it on camera. Uh, I think the guy name is Steve Crump. Um, so you know, he was asking the guy, like, "What gives you the right?" called me a nigger, you know, and uh, the guy says, the Constitution of the United States. And what? And then he says, well, what gives you the right to call me a, a slave? And then he said the same codified answer, um, the Constitution of the United States. And then, you know, he even spelled it out and everything. And then he said, well, did you know that, because um, he, cause he started also saying, well, you know, I have a, a second, third, fourth, and fifth, sixth, and all of that. And then he said, Well, if you knew the ninth and the fourteenth Amendment you would have, you wouldn't have done what you just did now and then he says he said, Dude, what are you talking about? You you really are a nigger. You're acting niggerly. You know, he didn't define anything he was saying. So uh the guy he didn't he didn't go anywhere, like he had to call the the reporter had to call the uh law enforcement officials to come and uh to come and arrest him. And he seemed to to be smoking something in the footage, I couldn't tell what it was. Maybe it was some kind of cannabis, but you know, he was saying, um, the creator endowed me. That's that's what he was also saying. That, you know, I'm white and you know, God gave me the right. And he endowed me, so blatant white supremacy and that and uh that's that's all I have, thank you.
5: I saw that incident. I I saw that. I uh, just didn't include it in the audio where the the black journalist was uh, accosted verbally by this tacky uh, race soldier. I think he did get arrested, ultimately, the racist in that incident. Uh, Mr. Reed, if you wanted to share verbally your commentary, uh, I I muted your line before. I will unmute you if you want to share your commentary. If not, I can just read your response. I think he was going to add a uh, remark to what retired firefighters shared. uh any other folks that we haven't heard from who had commentary they wanted to share
34: can i be heard yes ma'am uh good evening mr to renegade and internet listeners um i was listening to your clip and one of the things um it just stuck out like a sore thumb with respect to the jessica sanders uh and the guy who was interviewing her asked her, um, do you think the guy was being a little bit, um, you know, um, uh, what did he say, confrontational? And she said, oh, yes, oh, yes, like like he was abetting her. You know, it's always, it, it, you know, and the guy earlier, one of the the, the, the listeners was saying, too, that it seemed like he, they were trying to help her. As, oh, I hope you're doing okay. Will you use the word in again? And, you know, uh, can you ask for, can you make an apology or open air, you know? And, it's, you know, you never hear that really uh, used in, in black, when somebody black us something. You never hear that type of abettingness to them. And I, I, just, I just thought, that he had to say that. I mean, that's not journalistic. Oh, did you feel like he was being, you know, he was being confrontational to you as if, that's the reason why you did that to him and he deserved what he got or whatever. I, I just, it just, this rubbed me the wrong way. With, with respect to Emmett Till, I think they probably can get some surveillance cameras. I'm sure they could afford that. I mean, why would they be asking for money when they can find out who these people are and, and, and have it done? They can have a surveillance camera there. Then they'll know who the, uh, who the, uh, uh, vandalists are. Um, this lady said I'm not the the person I thought I was. That, that's like a common statement for race for people who are racist. You know, they always say, Well, I never knew it was really in me <laughs> i did not have to laugh at that. I never knew it was really in me. I'm not the person I thought I was. This was the white woman saying that they that got a chuckle out of me. And of course the implicit bias, you know, cold words that they they you know, the way in which they always have to preface the story, like they have to tell it in their own words. And then, of course, I want to say free all, politi- uh, free more media and all politi- political prisoners. There was an article I read, August uh, and, and listeners. It was in the New York Times this week. And it was funny because I was reading the article, it was given to me to read, and um, the article took place in Maplewood New Jersey. What happened was, this was the situation. It was a black man, his son, and a white girl. They were on. The, they were playing in the playground. And Maplewood what is is only about uh, this would be like a cosmopolitan town, you know, up, you know, you know, whatever. People always say, "Oh, things like that wouldn't happen there. It was too or whatever." And so the the black uh, man and his son, the son was playing on the playground. The white little girl, this is a five year old girl, mind you, said to the black boy. You're not white, so you cannot play here. And the black boy kept playing like it was nothing to it. The father heard the, you know, the statement that the young black, the young white girl made, and he didn't say anything at the time, but it was a white man sitting next to him, and he told him about it. He didn't go to the mother. The mother was in the playground. He didn't come to the mother. What happened is he told the man next to him, which was a white man. Then he went home and told his, his wife about the situation. And they, you know, they were trying to explain to the child, um, you know, what was going on. And I thought to myself, from my, from my perspective, I thought maybe me, him probably being the alpha male that the black boy was, probably didn't care what the white person said or the white girl said. And I wondered to myself, had that incident happened not only outside but in the classroom? Uh, Those are my sentiments. Thank you for letting me speak, and I will mute my line.
5: I posted about that uh, last incident, uh, the incident that happened at the playground. Uh, There was a lengthy report, I believe, at ProPublica earlier in the week about that incident. Um, If you want to check it out, it's... uh, I yes, you have to scroll back because it was at the early part of the week. But it's in there, I promise, uh, on the Facebook page. And it's titled, uh, Only White People Said the Little Girl at ProPublica.org. Uh, other folks we have not heard from have commented.
40: May I you heard? Yes, sir. Uh, hello
30: and greetings to you, Gus, uh, to all the listeners and the callers. <clears throat> um, first, I want to say thank you. Thank you, Bush, for everything that you do with, with this program, with not just for these last, like you say, almost two weeks, but just for the last eight years, just, just who you are, what you've been bringing to us, just everything. It's been critical. It's, it's been constructive. And so thank you. Um, I want to make a statement. Racism and white supremacy is highly um, coordinated, very highly coordinated. Speak on two of the uh, two of the clips that I heard. Um, <clears throat> the first, like, uh, I think it was Thomas that said it, and uh, the other caller from Chicago uh, put on to it that it it was a uh, it was a conservative conservative media that that put 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 out about the the uh, white female calling the non black fem- uh, 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 male uh, a nigger, and um, it just explained like when I was listening to it, it just sounded like I couldn't see it, but I felt like if I could see it, that it would some some kind of way be shown in a light where he seemed more of the aggressive, he seemed more emotional, uh, more uh, you know just overall emotion, anger, and he he would be the one to attack her for 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 what she said, but it, then listening to it. I just felt like everything was on. Everything was his fault, and what she did was bad. But we can get over it. it just and and just in every aspect of it, the questioning, the back and forth, listen to the audio, all of it. So it, and it just explained to me. Like I said, the call in Chicago's telling me that it was conservative media. Um, <clears throat> also, um, the clip about the mayor. Exactly what the other caller said. White, white people in my eyes are very, they, they, they just uh, leech. They're they're smart, you know. The the people just I won't say people like us, but they, you know, they they have their intelligence. But in everything, it seems like it breaks. Everything that they do, it breaks down and shows that they, they get it all. They, they get what they know from other people or from other things. The, the, the statement that he made about it, if we focus on the facts, we'll never get to the truth or some, something to that effect completely made no sense. Kept going with it. not skip a beat racism, white supremacy in my eyes at its best, at its best. It make, makes no sense in the things that they do, but, uh, but keep going along with it. And it'll some kind of way fit in. We're going to make it fit in. Cause this is what we want to do. Um, the two commercials, the one commercial about uh, what the, um, the re- retired firefighter was saying, and in, in, uh, what he was saying about the flip your meat course. I've seen it a couple times too. I've, I've heard it one time on the radio, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Same, the, the homosexual agenda is we've already known is. I hope I can get away with this full swing. It's going forward. It it full head of steam that's has it's gone. It's, it, this is what it is. This is what it's going to be. The specifics of the commercial, I, as he said, I'm not too sure of the product they're, they're selling. are we're, we're selling. It didn't even matter. Just the fact that you have two men speaking about flipping each other's meats or other meats or any kind of meats, just two men. And just in that context, it was just very, uh, homosexual. Very, um, and it just took me back to a, a, a conversation I was having with with my wife about films, not just commercials but films that I'm seeing um most of the time where it's a black male lead and they're not playing a homosexual lead or 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 more more to the point of, of they're, playing, they're playing a powerful lead lead role in the movie they're they're whoever their counterpart is excuse me not whoever. Their counterpart is a white male. It seems that that white male has homosexual tendencies throughout the movie. The way they they might speak at one point in time, the way they move their hands, their body movements, their walk, something about it, uh, not something about it. Those instances are very homosexual and not judging. it, it just it, it is what it is. One movie in particular that comes to mind is The Equalizer. Uh, where well, Denzel Washington is playing Robert McCall, his counterpart, whatever the guy's name is. In the movie, his name is Teddy Ranson, I want to say, or Achinko. But his, in one scene, he's speaking to some Irish, Irish, uh, uh, I guess, mobsters or whatever you want to call them. Um, he's speaking to them, but as he's speaking to the guy, the waving of his hands, the things that he says, almost the fluttering of his eyes pair. pair seen the movie so many times but i'm looking at it and it's just very homosexual but then he turns to be this uh um killer of a person he shows his it, to be somewhat um uh, macho and, and he can kill and he's this and he's that so it's just very confusing um and the other commercial about uh about the packers and the Vikings. I had, a crux, I had a Francis Cress Wilson moment when, she, towards the end, she walked up on, I, I think you said the wrong barbecue, but there were all white males, and they just, when they were in a huddle, they seemed, they seemed confused, but they also seemed like they saw, they saw her as being, having what to only satisfy the white female, um, the black man, what she what you know they uh, white people crave black flesh, and it just it just popped into my mind. Not the fag, but the cigar. You know what I mean. And they're at a they're, they're at a football game. Upright legs, white woman. V role, as you said, leaving the the her her children and the, that tragic arrangement behind. He seems to just be there just to hold the family and just to do whatever she says and i just thought that was very uh, uh, listening to this to this to the show listening to this show and staying tuned in you get once you do that you see what it really is it's not just a commercial it's a, a practice of racism white supremacy and once again guys thank you and uh, i'll meet my line
5: Appreciate that. Uh, anyone else that we have not heard from uh, we have about 40 minutes left uh, anybody that we have missed completely can I be heard? Yes, ma'am.
3: Hi. Um. Greetings to everybody, and I want to echo what the <clears throat> excuse me what the last caller said. Um. You know, thank you, Gus, for this show. I don't know where you came up with the concept from, but it's it's a brilliant show. And I actually passed it by because I didn't want to hear from Europeans or people who classify themselves as white. But as I continued to listen to the show, I, I saw how much you can learn from them. But I wanted to. Um, Speak on um, implicit bias and unconscious bias and things of that nature. I don't believe that that exists at all. I believe that that is um, something that people who classify themselves as white use to excuse the biases that they have. Um, if you take for an example, you know Donald Trump. He was holding. I saw a picture of him holding um, a. A um, an, an African baby, and I was, I was very frightened when I saw that. I just pictured him throwing that baby to the ground. Now, that bias that I have against him, I am not unaware of that. I'm very aware of it. I'm very conscious of it, and I think Europeans just don't want to, or people who classify themselves as white, they don't want to take responsibility for the biases that they have, and they talk this and that about how you know, they may clinch their purses or cross the street when they see Africans or whatever. That doesn't even happen. What I see, I don't see any fear or any of that. What I see is a bunch of Europeans flocking to the rap concerts while these rappers are preaching about violence. I see they're the main people that are buying um, all of their albums more so than we are. I see European women flocking to African men because of the reputation for the, that they have for their midsections, I don't see any of this fear and this bias and all this stuff that they're talking about. It just seems like an excuse to abuse us and to act like, Oh, well, you know, I don't, I don't even really know that I'm doing it. It's the same thing about this nonsense about their, their ignorant, that unconscious stuff is the same thing. And the reality of it is, is that implicit bias and unconscious bias, that's the psychological terms. Those are not dictionary terms. And a bias is to be for or against. How can you be unaware of that? So when I look up the, you, you can't be unaware of something that you are for or against. And the reality of it is, is that the majority of psychologists are European anyway. So that to me is just refined racism to try to um, excuse their behavior. And they've come up with a lot of ways to do that. And I know Tim Wise teaches a lot of that stuff um, barbara trip on and a bunch of other people. So, um, that's all I wanted to say. And I mean, if we had time in the show, you know, I'd like to get other people's opinions on that as well. But I mean, if not, I understand that as well. And I'll, I'll move, I'll mute my line and thank you for taking my call.
5: Appreciate that. Um, did we miss anybody? Anybody that we have not heard
20: from at all have commentary? Can I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, I just wanted to point out uh, how the mayor, when he was saying uh, how easily they could switch their rhetoric. Normally, it's always wait until all the facts come out. Now, somehow, when the facts show, like, unequivocally that he was getting, you know, harassed, now the facts don't mean anything. Also, uh, I want to talk about...
5: Your uh, volume is going down a little bit. Make sure you're speaking directly into the receiver or your device. Oh,
20: I'm sorry. Oh, I wanted to talk about how because uh, no I noticed that normally a lot of people have been saying that they don't they don't learn about Matt Turner in school. But my little brother last year when he was a uh, he, he went to a middle school that's in um uh, South Central, it's I guess it's South Central it's, it was formerly uh known as like Henry State Middle School, now it's uh something else. But anyway, he was learn they actually had curriculum about like Matt Turner uh, and a few other so-called, like, I guess, freedom fighters or what have you, like, I don't know, it's, it's the black people. And when the guy was teaching him about Matt Turner, I was like, hey, like, like, what did, you know, what did he say about Matt Turner? He was like, well, um, basically
2: he was saying that,
20: yeah, he fought for uh, the free slaves, but he was kind of crazy, and what he did wasn't right. Basically trying to make it seem like uh, Matt Turner was, wasn't necessarily a good guy. And they spoke, he actually knows, like my little brother, he actually knows, uh, has a familiarity with a lot of, uh, I guess, you know, civil rights leaders or just black people in general uh, because he went there. And uh, that's all I had.
5: Interesting. Wow. Uh, Anybody else that we missed, anybody who has not been able to share at all have commentary. get everybody we didn't miss anybody nobody uh had a hand up that we missed grand grand uh mr reed he wrote in uh he said flipping meat has been hijacked from street slang uh, i think retired firefighter bought this up earlier uh with a commercial uh flip the meat uh, usually used when chatting about last night's girl you had flipping the meat is when you flip your girl over onto either side to get access uh, that's, I guess, the way that it used to be used, but it has been contaminated, which happens kind of a lot under the system of white supremacy. Uh, I think we got everybody. So if folks had, uh, additional comments, they wanted to get in, we have about 15 minutes before, uh, the program wraps. Anything else you want to make sure you get in, uh, I heard any the audio clips, your own observations, uh, things you, uh, want to make sure that folks think about before we get ready to wrap up. Oh, that section on, uh. The Albino brothers that were mistreated. Within that clip, the white woman, Beth Macy, the author of the book, she said albinism in African Americans is actually more common than albinism in European Americans. That was definitely one to take a minute or two to ponder on. I I would love to get Dr. Welsing's comments on that, but that was the direct sentence, the exact sentence, albinism in African Americans is actually more common than albinism in European Americans. Mm. Uh, anybody else have comments they want to get in? Charlie Hurt. Yes, sir. Yeah, um, I, I think that might be true, Gus.
41: Um, I remember in high school we took um, biology, and um, it had to do with two pure black guinea pigs, and when they mate, one out of every four babies will come out albino, and I believe the same thing was with rats pure black rats, and um, it's, it's kind of, I think, a common thing. I don't know. But I, I think that um, I didn't even know that, that white people could be. Who's a white-out buyer? I heard that uh, Anderson Cooper was. I'm not sure, though, because um, they still look white. <laughs> um, but um, I think that implicit bias is, is going to be used like white privilege. Um, it's going to be that that catchphrase. It's it's just very, um, a very refined way. White's could get away with practicing racism, and, and calling it something that it's not. Um, and I, I don't think that giving white people implicit bias tests um, before they enter like the police academy and things like that is going to solve. I mean, it's just helping them refine maybe how they write their reports and things like that. But it's not really going to change anything. Um the implicit bias they're talking about is that the that the white people are racist. And um, you know, that's what it means to be white. And it's no way to get around that. So that's not gonna solve the problem at all. It's just going to just give them a, a new way of wording how things go down. Um as for the um Akia Boyd Boy clip, um uh, I started working at the hospital um, and i I was training in ER and I've witnessed, um, several, um, several acts of racism. But first the prisoners, the people who come in, you have people that come in from the correctional facility. Um, and then you have also people who just got arrested and they need medical attention. Um, so you'll see the correctional officers sitting in front of some of the people's beds in the ER, and you'll see the cops sitting in front of people's beds, and they, everyone's coughed. Um, the people from the correctional facility in particular, um, they, they weren't given any pain medications. I noticed that. Um, they were in excruciating pain uh, even before they were examined. Um, one guy had a broken arm. They didn't give him anything for it. They just, you know, picked his arm up. Oh, yeah, it's broken, and he screamed. Um, It was terrible. Um, Also, I witnessed a black lady who was, um, obviously, um, she was arrested for something. And um, she had to use the bathroom. And um, she kept saying she needed to use the bathroom, and they weren't letting her. They just were making jokes. And either way, she stood up, and they tackled her and brought her down. But all night, I kept seeing this baby, like a newborn baby, just being passed off around the ER, and um, you know you got very sick people. I'm like, well, who would bring their baby to work? I'm thinking it's one of the um, people that sit behind a desk, but it happened to be that lady that they tackled baby. They were waiting for the dispatch to come get her. But this this black baby just, there you know, people going to check on people have holding the baby. Oh, it's so cute and kissing the baby in the face. I mean, um, being and I'm like, I, this was a white baby. This wouldn't have been allowed to happen. You know, I don't care what the mother was in there arrested for, that baby would have been up in the maternity ward until someone came to get them or something. I just thought that was uh, extremely racist. And um, that's just to name a few. I noticed so many things that happen in that ER, um, especially if you don't speak English. um, They get treated much better than the blacks because um, some of the people that attend to them speak Spanish. And they will come over and make sure that a doctor gets in there to see them. They advocate for them, and um, also people who speak—people um, from Asia, you know—the people who work there that's Asian or Asian, whatever, they Indian or Chinese or whatever—they go over and advocate for them. But no one comes in to advocate for the black people to get good treatment. Uh, even the black people that work there, you know, they—you know—they um, don't—you know—say, "Hey, this person's been here. I mean, I saw people there for hours. No one saw them," and um. You know that was just one day
5: working there and not on that floor, and I'll be my thinking must all be a product of implicit bias uh retired firefighter in Florida were you gonna comment sir
22: oh yes sir um as I mentioned before uh <clears throat> we uh had a game uh last night and uh became uh what is called the district champions which you know, kind of like it uh, uh, elevates you uh, into the playoffs, although we have a, a regular season game, uh, the last game of the season, but it really doesn't factor in or anything. Uh, from my understanding, some kind of history was made uh, because with all of the district opponents, uh, we were able to not allow not a team to score at all, all zeroes uh the staff is all black that I've been on 99% of them since I've been coaching since 1981 uh for the most part I've only coached with black males and that's on purpose actually uh but anyway uh this after, this uh morning uh through the head coach he uh sent out a uh, text that was uh given to us given to us by someone by the name of Ivan, who calls himself Ivan Volkov uh, from uh, Moldova State University. Now, I looked that up, and it is a picture of a what appears to be a white male. And as everybody knows by the sound of that, it sounds like someone uh, from uh, uh, Russia, somewhere from Eastern, uh, quote-unquote, Europe, uh, area just by the sound of the of the, of the name. So I, I looked up Moldova State University, which I never heard of, and I suspected it is in another part of the world, uh, formerly called the Soviet Union. But nevertheless, that person may be a few, only a few miles from me. Whoever this person really is, I don't know if it was a white person or a non-white person. From from what I'm about to read, doesn't give any clarity on that i would I would like to speak with the person uh face to face but anyway here goes the Southridge coach needs to be fired immediately Southridge was not able to execute one point after touchdown kick oh I just wanted wanted to say we we the game was won 20 to nothing uh moving forward this is sub peewee Lead coaching. Once again, it is an African American coach that cannot prepare a team to execute a PAT. Is he trying to announce to the world that black players and coaches are not intelligent enough to execute this simple play? It is a slap in the face to the black community that this staff is too stupid or too lazy to do it attention to details like this is why Walt Frazier won a bunch of state titles at Carroll City now mind you Walt Frazier who I coached with is a black male and Carroll City which is now called Miami Gardens uh, is uh, about 90 99 percent non-white black people Anyway, that's where I reside at also. Uh, Shame on the red staff for being poor role models to the players. Now, mind you, as I mentioned before, the person who actually uh, put this out probably was only a few feet from me during the course of of the game. Uh, The team that we uh, defeated uh, is the uh, second most populated uh, by coaches and players of being white. Uh the area in South Florida is the last pocket of quote unquote white people where they reside at in South Florida. Uh kind of like a Pinecrest area, I think it's called. Uh but anyway I thought it was quite interesting. I didn't respond. I didn't respond to it at all, even on the even on the group text with the other black males. Uh, they seem to be uh, 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 humorous about it, uh, that sort of thing. But it wasn't my codified response was to not respond uh, uh, that there was no was not going to be in a response from me on it. Because as Mr. Fuller uh, uh, has said, uh, you know, you know, white, white person, white, person, you know, say, say anything they, they want. The question becomes to to me is, well, what are you going to do about it? You know to that white person, that's the only thing my concern is i mean, he can say anything he wants for that concern. and uh, but I thought it was quite interesting, and uh decided to share it with everybody also uh thank you.
5: Thank you for sharing yet another illustration of unconscious bias uh anybody, anybody <laughs> anything else can I be heard yes sir um, I was just
33: thinking um when you were talking about uh in the clip where they were talking about albinos where they said that. Uh, albinism shows up more in African Americans than it does in uh, white Americans. Um, I think that's a form of obfuscation because the entire white race are albinos um, essentially so um, and Dr. Wilson called them an inbred race themselves so they are all albinos and what they're trying to do is make a certain type of albino which is the type that Anderson Cooper would represent um, because of his uh, the lack of color in his hair him having like, like a really really white white hair um but the entire race of white people they are albinos um so to me it's just a form of uh, obfuscation of the facts to make themselves seem normal that's what they've been doing for you know thousands of years now trying to normalize whiteness which even in the animal kingdom whiteness is you know the most abnormal expression of the genome except for in cold places where in order to blend in, in a snowy environment you need white fur like, um, you know, there's certain foxes and rabbits that are able to change colors and become white in the winter, and even owls that turn white in the winter in order to blend in with the snow. So outside of cold environments, whiteness is, is uh, an anomaly. It's nothing normal about it. So I think in that clip, that's essentially what they were trying to do is normalize whiteness. Thank you.
5: Appreciate that. I'll probably get in one more
4: comment. Uh, anything else folks want to make sure they get in before we wrap up?
5: Oh
33: yeah, Gus, I wanted to ask you for something. If I wanted to know if I can get um Millie Fuller's number. I have a coworker um who I just found about found out about her situation yesterday, but she's been pretty much terrorized by uh the white a white female manager on my job and there was a few situations where she made some really horrible comments in front of other coworkers. This coworker of mine, this black female, she wrote uh, a, a detailed uh an incident report to human resources and they basically left it, uh, basically left it alone and stopped dealing with it for the last few months. And she just wanted to get some insight on how to move forward because she's not going to drop the issue, which I told her, I think that's, you know, just an act of black self respect. So I wanted to get her in touch with Millie Fuller so she can get his insight on, um, maybe some suggestions on how to move forward with dealing with the situation. 202-484.
5: Uh-huh. 5461 202 484 All right, thank you so much. I appreciate that so much. Thank you, guys. Yes, sir. All right. Uh, with that, that should pretty much wrap us up for the day. Uh, we will still be here tomorrow. Uh, Mr. Charles oh. Woods, aka the professor, uh, he'll be a guest on the program tomorrow. Uh, We'll be looking forward to hearing uh, some of his views on racism, white supremacy, and film. Folks uh, had a few thoughts on uh, television uh, and racism this evening. That will be the exclusive focus for the subject matter tomorrow. Uh, We'll be able to get his thoughts on uh, Queen Sugar, uh, Luke Cage, uh, Nate Parker's project, uh, as well as some older films. Get his thoughts on uh, black people that are born outside the States. Uh, playing prominent roles uh, like David Oyelowo, him playing Dr. King in Selma, uh, Zoe Salanda playing Nina Simone. Uh, we'll get his thoughts on that uh, as well as uh, if technology, uh, if it will be easier for black people moving forward uh, to use film, TV, to uh, help get out the word about racism, white supremacy, and counter-racism through that medium. But that'll be tomorrow, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, with that, uh, we will wrap uh, if you have uh, questions, confusion, if you can't find something in the archives, gripes, whatever your commentary, feel free to drop an email untiljustice at, gmail.com, untiljustice at gmail.com, And you can follow us on Twitter at Until Justice. At Until Justice. Uh, thanks, everyone, for tuning in. I hope it was a constructive investment of your Saturday evening. We'll be back in about 24 hours. Uh, With that, I will state, again, sobriety would be best under conditions of white supremacy. Uh, We want to make sure our behavior reflects the fact that war is being waged against us at all times, Uh, particularly if you're going to be in a vehicle as a driver, passenger, even as a pedestrian. You do not want to be intoxicated and have that be the day that you bump into Daniel Holtzclaw, Darren Wilson, any of these other race soldiers, Uh, I don't think being under the influence of cigarettes, alcohol, cannabis, any other substances, I don't think thus far the evidence shows that we do a better job of neutralizing those situations with racists when we're under the influence. I could be in error, but I think the evidence is uh, pretty irrefutable thus far. With that, thanks everyone for tuning in. We will catch you all tomorrow morning. Uh, With that, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy, we ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person, creator. Give extra strength to all of us who are attempted black parents, black mothers, black fathers, Uh, Help us pass constructive information, life-saving information on to black offspring. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Cal signing out. Thanks all for tuning in.
22: Nigga, you're so brainwashed.
13: I'm a victim, brother.
5: You're a
33: victim. I'm a victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm Mm-hmm